because those are all very straightforward. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Most of them, anyway. I mean, my first page of notes in this little, you know, legal pad I have is just up to page eight. So I was just yeah. A lot of shit coming at you fast in that first part. Mine's like the first five, and then I was like, fuck it, I need to type this because I'm taking too many notes, and I'm like using all, like, I don't want to waste a whole fucking notebook on Ben Lerner. Not, I mean, or just, just not, not on 80 pages of Ben Lerner essay, <laughs> where there is no clear thesis until the end, and kind of spattered throughout, which is fine, like, whatever, that I can deal with. Yeah. But yeah, I would say even typed my first my first page goes up to page eleven. Perfect, perfect day to be discussing poetry theories. Would you call it theory? Well, uh, I guess we'll see. Yeah, we'll yeah, I'd probably argue that this is mostly a theory. But yeah, all right. So this is Heavy Board. My name is Andrew Whitstadt. I'm Sophie Weiner. And today we're talking about The Hatred of Poetry by Ben Lerner. The Hatred of Poetry. Hatred. Provocative title. Sexy. It is. I don't know why I thought this was originally uh, published by Grey Wolf. I guess that's... But it's not. FSG. Yeah. And this was originally published in 2016. Yeah, you can feel that. You can yeah. definitely feel that reading. Yeah. So is this uh, the first Ben Lerner you've ever read? Yeah, this is the first Ben Lerner I've ever read. I haven't read any of his novels or his books of poetry. I've heard good things about his novels. Not so much about his poetry, but... I have... Um, I read 1004... That's one of his novels, one no. of his two big novels. So he has 1004 and Leaving the Otochi Station. Is that what's called? Yeah. Whatever. But he has those two books. I read 1004. His latest Very autofiction. Yeah. Very sexy. Um, I, it, it was one of those things where it's like not bad writing. Like there's something in it that's smart but also very annoying and that's not to like shit on him at all you know it's just also how i feel about autofiction 99.9 percent .9 of the time is it is his stuff autofiction um 1004 definitely is i don't know about the others his latest one i know because it was just literally every time you picked up whenever it came, i guess it came out in like 2019 the topeka school and that, I just know that title and everything because it was every time you picked up a Harper's or a New Yorker or something, it was talking about. Ben yeah, Lerner's I don't. I don't school. know. I think, I think I walked away from Ben Lerner in like 2016 and <clears throat> just decided no more. I just decided uh. that I needed a break. Okay, full disclosure, I like read him in a class. Was not really pleased with the the class overall have a lot of negative associations um what so that could be part of it 
What was the class? I had to give it up. Recent fiction. Okay. It was a lit class. So it was all contemporary fiction. It was all really, really recent. Like last, you know, at the time I was taking the class, all fiction that had been published probably within like the last couple of years, maybe. Like, so all of the books that we were reading, some of them, you know, were up for big prizes maybe that year. Huh. Um, yeah, like, I mean, we read the sympathizer in this class by um Viet Tan Wen was um... we also read Sheila Heedy we read um Paul Beatty was good um but yeah there, we yeah a bunch of other stuff station 11 we read oh, shit have you been watching the series No, I knew it was a thing, but I don't... No, we haven't been watching it. Yeah, I haven't been watching it either. I heard it was good. I've never read the book, but I heard people liked it. No, I've exclusively been watching garbage. Like, really trashy Netflix let's-not-have-sex shows. <laughs> let's-not-have-sex shows. Yeah, man. All right, fucking Ben Lerner. I've been watching nothing, but... All right, so I guess let's give a quick overview of this for listeners. So if we'd like... Uh, we'll read this little bio in the book here for those that don't know. Uh, ben Lerner's a, a pretty big figure here in, in at least contemporary literature. Uh, so Lerner was born in Topeka, Kansas, uh, received fellowships from Fulbright, Guggenheim, and MacArthur. I mean, those are all the most prestigious fellowships you could ever get. He has all three and is the author of two inter- uh, now three uh, internationally acclaimed novels, uh, 1004. And I think, yeah, the most recent is the Topeka School, but that's not in this one because this book was published in 2016. Uh, three poetry collections that I've never read. And I guess he, at the time of this book, he was a professor at Brooklyn College in New York. I don't know if he still teaches there. Does does he still teach there, probably? I would think. I wouldn't be surprised, but I have no idea. I wouldn't be surprised, because, I mean, it's not like professorships, like full professor jobs are just, like, everywhere right now. But if you're somebody like Ben Lerner with three of the most prestigious fellowships yeah. in the world behind your name, uh, you could probably change jobs pretty easily in that profession. But, yeah. I would assume so, yeah. Unless we know otherwise. This is how this is how well prepared we are. We have no idea. All right, what do you want to do with this, Soph? Where do you want to start with this? I have a few things we could start I mean, with. I, but we may I think get... we have to start with something pretty important. I think we have to start well, okay, in my mind we have to start with Marianne Moore. <sighs> I had a couple questions. Because that's where, I mean, yeah, go on. Well, I had a couple questions we could either just like, because these might, we could go very quickly into something out of left field with these, or we could come back to them uh, at the end if we wanted to. I don't know if we'd be burned okay. out. First one I Tell have, me what they are. First one is, is poetry dead? We could start with that. <laughs> And this is one that you and I have talked about a little bit, and you have a few ideas on this that I'm interested in. I don't know if you want to get into it, where it's uh, 
you know, who are defenses of poetry for, right? Like, what is the audience for, <laughs> some, for these defenses of poetry type thing? Because there are a lot. I mean, there are. As yeah. are denunciations, yeah. and are they for the same audience? Right, stuff like that. I don't know if you wanted to start with that before we actually break down. Yeah, well. Learner's I mean, opinions we'll, on that, yeah. Go for it. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we'll, we'll probably start touching on this and then come back to it um, sort of as we work through all of our ideas about the book. But, I mean, is poetry dead? Well, I don't... I. Is this the question that this essay seeks to answer? Did we mention that it's an essay, that this book of 86 pages is uh, yeah. just an essay yeah it's kind of a rambling kind small of, small yeah, little book personal essay too, point, yeah. too as a monograph but yeah is poetry dead i think that's a big question i think it's a sexy question and i don't get lots of hits dude get lots of hits for this episode <sighs> i <laughs> Uh, I mean, I don't know if it matters is the problem, like, is my inherent problem with the question. Like, dead to whom? I, I guess... think you have to answer the audience question before you answer that. Like, because to any, like, a massive portion of the world population at any given moment, yes poetry is dead and actually probably never really existed. Hmm. Uh, But I think for people who love poetry, like is contemporary poetry fucked, I think is a better question Uh than is poetry dead. Like, I think that people will keep reading Dickinson for many years to come. Right. In that sense, poetry isn't it. Or they at least keep pretending. Uh, does contemporary poetry suck? Um, probably mostly. But I would say that's historically probably also true. Yeah. Like that most of poems and poets of any given moment are terrible or just mediocre. And just right now, our access is so much greater right. that there's so much more that it would appear that like poetry just kind of sucks right now. It's also like, you know, always going to be like, I guess since access to it is much wider than it has been historically, because, you know, it's not like it's like been accessible to the average person for a lot of our literary history yeah Uh, and i think we'll get into this one week because learner does make some hints at an idea like this whereas like yeah i mean you know any given year if you look at all the art that came out and any this goes beyond poetry but any genre or craft of art you look at it yeah most of it isn't good right most of it is not good and there's a few gems that come out and you know we try to reward those gems think of we're talking strictly books let's try to keep it books just for the purposes of this shit it's like all right we have these committees that give out awards they usually give them out to 
the ones that they, you know, we would consider the better ones that year or the best ones that year, you know, ideally. That's the lofty ideal behind yeah. it, at least. So there's always a lot, and you know, of the five books that get nominated for, you know, National Book Awards, uh, you know, <laughs> there's thousands that were published. I mean, you know, like it's not that. But if I were to narrow this down, since we're not just going all over the place, if somebody asked me point blank, is poetry dead? My short answer would just be yes. Yeah, I know it would. It's over. It's done. It's been over. Not yeah, I that, think like, I I don't know. I think I'd say no, but yeah, how we define this might be different. Yeah, not that that isn't to say that it doesn't exist anymore, right? But I guess and Lerner kind of hints at this when he quotes Grossman, but like when Grossman um I think kind of describes this the best way where yeah, of course it's not dead. I mean, this is just an art form like it's always going to be practiced. It's been practiced for thousands, you know, thousands and thousands of years before any of us were in existence. And then it'll probably be practiced for thousands and thousands of years after our existence, you know? Uh, so me declaring that means nothing, but yeah, I would say so probably. And Lerner doesn't even really try to defend people that are saying poetry is dead, but he does keep referencing it. I noticed throughout the essay, he just keeps referencing is like those that say poetry is dead or, is being killed or is done and i'm just like yeah but like who's saying this and like is it just random yeah, people so I think that... in like the comments on his you know social media pages like is it just random well, folks or is it uh somebody like grossman right. who well, makes it coherent yeah well I, yeah and i think that's part of the problem with this overall essay we can get into that is that you know there is relatively little cited um, some yeah. critics are cited as having declared at some point poetry dead, and he does make reference to those moments, and he does make reference to various historical and recent defenses of poetry, although I don't know that he makes many references to many recent so-called defenses, um, though we see them often, and I think that sort of the trying to figure out why we come back to these two places over and over again you know, why periodically we see either these like denunciations of poetry or this, you know, poetry is dead um, kind of statement. So, you know, someone will put out an essay somewhere about that and then we'll get something that says, you know, you know, like um, Dana Joya's Can Poetry Matter that came out in the Atlantic and that was in the early 90s, you know, and that sort of uh, stuck around too. But this was... You know, I, I remember at get the these over and over again. I guess for context, since this is one of the more contemporary books we've done so far on the on the pod, it's like um, we should say for context, like right around this time, like the 2015, 2016, uh, I saw a lot of just like New York Times op-eds, you know, Atlantic, Guardian, stuff like this, like shorter form, obviously, because they're like, you know, thousand word op-eds or whatever. Uh, just about how poetry is back or needed or some type of... Well, yeah, we were in the midst of, like, a national political meltdown. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, well, in, like, in all of the spheres. Like, in the academic world, right. this is, like, you know, poetry is kicking back up. Or at least, I don't know, maybe it just became more obvious. It was already very much happening 
like this was already very very apparent i think but um you know poetry of resistance became more commonly like discussed which i say more commonly but like i mean come on like that's been around forever like it just like has these moments probably of extreme popularity or like pockets of it where it's like or maybe I'm just describing being a college student when you're like resistance or whatever, you know, but yeah. Or this idea of poetry as like some great political force, which I tend to like disagree with because for that, I think you need a much broader audience. That, and I saw a lot of trend in those recent, in those op-eds that came out around that time. You'll still see one every once in a while, uh, just flutter through if anybody that subscribes to the Times, uh, you'll see them flutter through op-ed pages or something, like a guest writer, a big poet, somebody like Lerner, or somebody, you know, in Lerner's realm, like just a big status, you know, writer or poet, or somebody will write some defense. And a lot of what I see is they'll quote statistics from like Instagram, especially Instagram poets and book sales and Instagram poets sell a lot of books. <laughs> they sell a lot of books compared to other poetry. And people say, well, that means that poetry is thriving, you know, back. Uh, I'm not sure I buy that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Cause I'm At not the so same much... time, you also had like, oh, no, go ahead. Well, because I'm not so much sure that when people are buying what we would call, you know, quote unquote, Instagram poetry books, I'm not sure that they're buying it because they love poetry. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or I'm not sure they're buying right. it for the poetry. Uh, they're buying it because poetry is, I mean, this is the one of the reasons I say it's dead, or I would argue that it's it's dead, at least now, not that it couldn't, I mean, you know, when somebody says dead, maybe it is hyperbolic, right? Like, how could something like an art form be dead? You know, like how it's still there. Like, it's not like it disappeared. Uh, but yeah, I would say that, yeah, social well, media has usurped. Great... Yeah. Social media usurped well, the yeah, art. And I yeah. have the defenses of your argument. If I were to play devil's advocate, you know, and go to your side, was that like, you know, how many people have you met that are writers of poetry, but not really avid readers of it? Or who, like, you know, I mean, there's something to be said, I think, for reading broadly and reading everything. And, sure. you know, I certainly uh, have not successfully done that. <laughs> right? I don't think I would be here if I had. Um, yeah, I mean, read widely and broadly and, 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 you know, everybody has their taste. So, I mean just because I don't have a taste for whatever is the big selling, you know, Instagram thing right now, you know, if you enjoy it, uh, enjoy it. Right. Like, uh, don't take my word for it. Who the fuck am I? Like, uh, but yeah, of course, but like, you don't have to, you know, have any, it's also part of just like living in a moment where you don't have to have any acquaintance with the, you know, traditions of poetry in order to like execute a poem yeah and you don't have to go through kind of the traditional means so like you know back in the day if you didn't know if you didn't know ezra pound well then you probably weren't getting in the magazines right like <laughs> uh all that kind of stuff but yeah i mean that's an everyday thing i, I it's just he references a couple times people saying that yeah it's dead or it's dying and I don't know. 
we'll just we'll yeah. see what happens with that. Do you want to get into the other one or just into the books? Like, uh, who are these defenses for? Or are we going to hit that as we go? Come back to it? Give an answer oh, now? Oh, we've got to hit that as we go. Who are these we, defenses? I think yeah. that you should bring it back up when, when the moment feels right. Yeah. Um, Because I really want to talk about, like, before we get too far into the sort of abstract questions of shit, generally I want to start <laughs> with, like, the thing that I feel like the whole essay kind of has laying over it or maybe it just sort of rests on I don't know what the right metaphor is for this but like the the thing that incites in some way um, the rest of this essay is like his sort of meditation on Marianne Moore's poem poetry famous famous poem um, notably, there are two versions of it. There is a long version and a short version. I think it is good to be familiar with both versions. I think that um, the long one definitely gives you greater insight to this poem, though you don't necessarily need it. I don't think you need it to understand what is being said in this poem, but... Um, I questioned throughout reading this entire essay whether I believed in Ben Lerner's reading of this poem, which, like, frustrates the shit out of me because Ben Lerner's smart as shit. Like, there's no getting around that. Um, and, you know, we can get into other opinions later. As a genius, Grant. <laughs> well, but, like, he, you know, he's a smart dude has an academic understanding of poems. There are just basic things about, I think, what this poem is actually about that are never touched. Um, and so the this poem, called Poetry, family, famously starts with the line, I, too, dislike it. It here being poetry... Um, reading it, however, it goes on, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine. We don't have to go into the fact that he said that this is uh, tougher to memorize than Shakespeare. I'm going to go <sighs> ahead and disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, the enjambment. I think I this couldn't... is much easier. <laughs> I think he says something like the enjambment. I couldn't memorize it because of the enjambment. Yeah, but the rhyme of Shakespeare, you know, <laughs> that makes it so much easier to remember. Forget about, you know, the complexity of the, the language that he was using. This is hard. So now that we're done pitying, you know, the young ninth grade Ben Lerner who says that he chose to memorize this poem by Marianne Moore instead of Shakespeare, like his other classmates. He did this for a class. So when we're done pitying him, we get into this discussion about what this poem is for him. Not so much what it means, but, you know, I guess his personal truth about like the poem and like what it's saying or find some way to connect it um, to the, the argument that ultimately he will make. Right. 
Um, he says, what kind of art assumes the dislike of its audience and what kind of artist aligns herself with that dislike even encourages it? <sighs> yeah. An art hated from without and within. What kind of art has a condition of its possibility, a perfect contempt? And then even reading contemptuously, you don't even achieve the genuine. Um, I don't feel like we ever at any point get a clear determination of what exactly the genuine is. Yeah, that's what I was, one of my questions was, okay, what is the genuine here? Uh, I can only align it with what he will later define as the virtual or, you know, capital P poetry. Right. And we'll get into this very shortly, I'm sure. And what you just read there on page five is kind of like what I called the assumption that Lerner uses to kind of go off from, to kind of like, he uses this assumption to, you know, frame the essay, essentially. Uh, but yeah, I take a few issues with the framing one being okay what is the genuine uh how does one judge it you know what does it look like uh an example anything right give me something to actually talk about uh and i they, you'll hear me do this listeners as we go through this episode here because what i took umber like what i kind of found grading about reading this was the vagueness the kind of dancing around what i think is an actual point but just not managing to nail nail it down and i just things like that like okay well then what's the genuine uh the other thing i have here on page five was just like when he calls it the like um just a few lines down uh and this is where i brought that question about is poetry dead because he says on page five here every few years an essay appears in a mainstream periodical denouncing poetry or proclaiming its death usually blaming existent poet, existing poets for the relative marginalization of the art. And then, you know, defenses light up the blogosphere before the culture, if we can call it a culture, there's blah, blah, blah. All that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the central, that's definitely the central theme, right? This, you know, whole denunciation versus defense of poetry, the hatred of poetry versus the love of poetry, right? Um which, you know, we're reading into that I too dislike it and, um, you know, the part about um, reading it with a perfect contempt for it, which contempt here is probably a little bit closer to hatred than dislike. Um, but whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just don't think that... Um, I feel like there's just like this weird shift in this moment right from the this like weird jump from talking about uh marianne moore's poem uh to you know poetry overall as being something defined by both a hatred of and love for or by both a denunciation and a defense but he sort of throughout the essay seems to like put these I mean he never like it sort of starts out as situated like the hatred and love of poetry like 
comes out of the same person or from the same place, right? But then we talk about various denunciations and uh, defenses of poetry, and those frequently come from very different places, right? From very different writers. And I just don't think that he actually talks about what the hatred of poetry is <laughs> or certainly like what the dislike of certain poetry is and definitely not in the context of Moore's poem. Well, that's what I think he like, tries to right after where he's just like, okay, the blaming existing poets for the relative marginalization of the art, right? Like denounce whenever you hear these articles, either defending or denouncing like you could throw defending in here too, because I, like I said, I just mentioned there's articles that I saw just over the last five, six years, just coming out, you know, just coming out of normal places like the times and stuff. Marginalization of the art. My question is, all right, what is that? It's not popular. doesn't sell books. People yeah, turn their well, nose the up la- to it. The, the so-called marginalization, you know, it's not central to our culture. Like people right. aren't, you know, poets aren't, famous except to other poets right that i think he makes a good point yeah and he makes a good point kind of trying to elaborate i think a little later on where he talks about this kind of imagined you know importance that we said oh historically it used to have importance or something it's like well i mean these people were born you know in the 20th century like it's not like they know (laughs) like every like oh yeah a time when like most of the population of the world couldn't read yeah it was just such a big powerful art form like everybody was consuming it yeah okay so i do i grant that yeah that's a good point he makes where it's like it is this imagined kind of if you're relying on that to make an argument about why poetry is dead or unimportant or you know what learner appears to be arguing against uh if you're using this kind of historical relativism kind of thing it's going to be a weak argument and i think he rightfully calls that out kind of in this later on not in these first couple i think what he's actually saying is that there are only as many readers of poetry as there are writers of it people frequently get offended by that well this is what grossman said you sent me that grossman quote right he said there are more practitioners than there are readers uh, of this art form uh like just saying like yeah that's okay <laughs> like no one ever is just like yeah that's fine like <laughs> i think what frustrates people is their so-called dislike of individual poems and we'll you know there's plenty to be said about individual poems in the context of learner's essay but right uh Yeah, so, like, I don't know, we get this sort of idea about, you know, a rhythm of denunciation and defense, as he goes on to say on page six. Yeah, I mean, I said, like, you know, what does this actually mean? Does it mean that the growth of its practice, but, like, not of its readership, like, you know, may ignite this, like, semi-constant urge to defend the art? to a largely unread public like I don't or like that as poets you know maybe and I think this is maybe a more honest point um that we're like constantly fascinated like fascinated by or concerned with the art of poetry um like that you know there's this constant searching for or purpose of the practice yeah uh 
I take issue with that quote where he says, yeah, what kind of art is defined has been defined for millennia by such a rhythm of denunciation and defense. I'm just kind of like, is that defined? Is that what defines the art? It isn't like, right, that, yeah. like, I mean, and this is the problem we'll come back to with everything. And like, we can sort of ignore everything I just said. Cause I'm like, I don't even care <laughs> about it now, but I like the problem is that it's not it feels non-specific like you you could say this of many forms of art right like you it doesn't just have to be poetry he says it has been defined for millennia by such a rhythm of denunciation and defense millennia so again that's a very lofty claim and i just highlighted that my little thing next to it was is it (laughs) <laughs> well, he does. I mean, he goes back to Plato. Is it defined by that? Right. And if so, how so? You know, like, uh, gotta give us something here, man. If you're gonna make this claim, like, I'm all for it, but like, yeah. you gotta give us something. Like, is it this? How did you come to this conclusion that poet, like, you know, this art is defined by such a rhythm of denunciation and defense? I mean, you could just say that that's like the entire like that's just true of art (laughs) yeah i mean like whenever something happens in any art you know there are people who are going to praise it and there are people that are going to defend it and like you know i that was the second big issue with this first piece of the essay is that i i was initially intrigued by this because i would was also very interested in like you know why do we need to defend poetry every so often like why do we keep seeing these articles come up right um and try to convince us how popular and important and vital poetry is or or how or how dead it is yeah or how yeah dead and like opposite. who and especially like and i'm i'm also very interested in like the idea of poetry's audience and like you know what that actually means and who poetry is for not like in the not in some like exclusionary way just like who as a poet like does one presume to be the audience versus <laughs> like who is the actual audience right. um yeah so i i think um those things are all really interesting but we also just don't get anything that feels very, I don't want to say concrete because I don't think that's right. But like, I almost feel like you could have gotten rid of the whole thing about Marianne Moore and just made this essay more clearly about like, you know, how do we follow this sort of cycle of denunciation defense? And like, what does that actually mean? I think that almost would have been a little bit clearer and more interesting from the jump instead of giving us a story about ninth grade and your fascination with Marianne Moore and then ultimately giving us a reading of Marianne Moore that I don't really understand. Yeah, I think this stems from, again, my bigger issue, and this is what I always bring up, is I think his argument stems from this problem of romanticizing the art to a level that 
well, can't be achieved. And I think that's what he's trying to say. But at the same time, he's kind of romanticizing it to that level. So, like, he's not actually proving. He does it in the next pages when he starts right. to talk about, um, when he talks about Cadman. And Grossman, that Grossman. Uh... And Pied, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, he gives us Grossman's um, interpretation, right? So, like, you know, we get this... I don't really care that much to talk about Bede right now. If you really want to know, um, look it up. Uh, Cadmon's hymn is like one of, I think, the first poems that we have record of in the English language, maybe. Yeah. Or maybe it wasn't like written in the English language, or I don't fucking remember. I learned this forever ago. But... um yeah, we. He talks about that, and he talks about sort of this transcendental calling, right? Yeah, what he says the on transcendental the... impulse, and like creates this image of a sort of like poet mystic almost. That's what I mean. It's this kind of romanticizing into abstraction that I don't find that useful. But the bottom of page seven into page eight, where he, you know, skipping over the catamon shit. Yeah, that was where he was just says, uh, bottom of page seven here, but going into page eight, poetry arises from the desire. And I think this is from Grossman, right? Uh, he said he's pirating Grossman here. Yeah, an abstract. Uh, yeah. Uh, poetry arises from the desire to get beyond the finite and the historical, the human world of violence and difference, and to reach the transcendent or divine. And right away, I'm just like, okay, reach the transcendent or divine like right away we're going into abstraction right away we're going to something that's going to be so difficult to define and talk about that we might not we're probably not going to get anywhere my thing was that is that like you know he gives us this from grossman but doesn't do more than the kind of like religious prayer like fervor of poets past like this is like what it is right oh a poet is so like a poet poem is so sacred it's hard to even talk about, right? The transcendent and divine. Like, he's talking about these huge fucking things. And I get what he's trying well, to hit at. the calling is more transcendent than right. the actual art, right? right. Like, Being that's fair. what he's getting at, I think. Is that, like, in a dream, your verses can defeat time. Your words can shake off the history of their usage. You can represent what can't be represented, right? Uh, but when you wake... When you rejoin your friends around the fire, you're back in the human world with its inflexible laws and logic. So he's like, you know, defining the sort of transcendental thing, right? Like isn't, and this is what he's going to establish throughout this entire essay, that there's, you know, the poem, there's actual poems, and then there's this thing that is capital P poetry, Right. Like there is essentially <laughs> the idea and the thing. Right. He right. gets very, very Plato on us. And uh, it's just kind of. I don't know. I feel like you could have won me over, a, like at least partially, if you had eased me into this. Um, with it, a little more discussion of the defense and denunciation, if you like really built something there and then gave us this, maybe. Um, but that's when we get, you know, the poet is a tragic figure, 
and the poem is always a record of failure. Yeah, I really, I don't under, I really have a hard time understanding this tendency uh, in an argument such as this to make poetry even more romanticized to the point that it's otherworldly, right? That as if it isn't a man-made thing, like as if it isn't, you know, well, people it's, just it's wrote so this. It's so fucking otherworldly. It's so fucking otherworldly that when it enters the real world, when it becomes a poem, and this is sort of Lerner's explanation, right? What he's going to go on to explain as the virtual versus the actual, which he steals from Grossman. And like, a, you know, and this Alan Grossman, he taught at the... Uh, he taught at the John Johns Hopkins MFA for a good long time before it was an MFA. It was, the you know, seminars. creative writing MA and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, really, really loved by his students and all of this shit. And for good reason. I mean, I like I, I've read him. He's fucking brilliant. He yeah. is way smarter than I am. Like, I mean, he's the kind of writer who you read knowing that you won't understand and like very much aspire to. But know that you have to read eight times and, you know, with a bunch of other references in order to be able to even begin to understand, which, you know, I'm sure many people would say well that means that it's like is it actually that smart or that good and i would say well like probably not <laughs> just by virtue of those things right yeah but um, I, I like because Carson. typically like when you know yeah i mean like you you just know that he's smart he's just one of those right i like, I like um, grossman for the same reason when we talked about bloom on our bloom episode where it was just he's incredibly serious he takes this very seriously and he's very careful, articulate, like desperately trying very to. Very genuine. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, oh, there's that word, genuine, dude. The genuine, the real. We talked about honesty <laughs> last episode. Honesty, these words that people throw out, yeah. and like when we talk about writing specifically, and it's, I'd like it to be a little bit more rigorous than what I currently read and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, you mentioned. Well, that, maybe it's um, that he, he's also very, very well read. Right. And another right. thing that you feel in both like, you know, in someone like Alan Grossman or someone like Harold Bloom, who, you know, well, is a you know controversial figure, um, you know that when you are reading him, that he is like very studied and that he knows his shit and that you feel comfortable trusting, um, you know, a lot of his uh, breakdowns of like a poem, even like if you are just look interested in um understanding whitman right uh bloom is a great place to go whether or not you agree with you know his particular positions on the canon or whatever you can sort of trust him to have a pretty solid understanding of whitman so yeah i mean grossman is not someone that you can just so easily like even i not understanding all of what I've read of Grossman felt very uncertain of his borrowing of Grossman's terms, just because I was like, I don't know, like his, all, everything that he explains feels more complicated than this and more nuanced than this. And this feels all too easy. Well, we plan to listeners at the end of this, go over kind of a response or rebuttal essay by holiday, kind of a bitchy essay by holiday. Uh, so, yeah, it's definitely a bitchy essay, but Halliday is kind of bitchy, but he does, but he, also was sort of, he knows Grossman, you know, he knew Grossman, he, uh, uh, 
pretty famously had a book length conversation with Grossman that you can buy called The Sighted Singer. That and um, <clears throat> I think one of the things Holiday attacks Lerner for in that is that he says uh, he misuses Grossman. He says he's not fleshing out like Grossman's careful nuance when he's making these distinctions. But the thing I took uh, like uh, an issue with in this one you just mentioned, right? So thus the poet is a tragic figure. The poem is always a record of failure. My, Ugh. the poem is always a record of failure. Again, for somebody who's so careful with their words, this is a very it's lofty claim. Failure. This is. It's a... not just a failure. It's a record of it. Which, like, okay, I guess. I mean, yeah, that's still kind of. I. It's careful for what he's trying to say. It says exactly what he's trying to say. Well, is always a record it is, of but it's failure. A lofty claim. Well, that's what I mean. So he didn't say most. He didn't say often. He said, always a record of failure. Now, we don't need to nitpick over yeah. that one word, but I was just saying, is that true? Do we agree with that claim? Because this is a pretty broad no. claim. Yeah, I don't agree with it either. I mean, okay, like, I, someone, listen, the right person could walk me down this rabbit hole, and maybe that makes me a piece of shit for just, like, not trusting in this particular explanation. I'm sure... That you, like, you could make some argument, I'm sure, that, like, you know, most poems will have some part of it, right, that does not line up with the original vision. But, like, do we care <laughs> upon reading the poem? Well, um, my bigger issue that in terms is, of... Like, a beautiful, wonderful poem that is celebrated over and over again, <coughs> whether or not the intention of the author is precisely executed. Well, for me, my question is... Or do both... we assume it is because it's good? Since we both say that, like, yeah, we don't think it's always a record of failure, and this is something Holiday gets into too, where he's just like, what? I can name you a bunch of great poems that don't fail, and he starts naming them, you know. But, like, my my bigger problem with this is if I was to write a defense of poetry like Lerner's trying to do here... Why frame it this way? Like, why diminish the art like this while defending it? I think he's doing it because oh. it makes it easier to defend when you just say, oh, well, it's all a failure. Didn't you know all poems are always a record of failure? Like, and I'm just like, it diminishes the art form. Like, he's and diminishing maybe he it. just, like, put out a book that didn't do that well, you know? Well, well, yeah, I mean, you could argue Lerner. I mean, nobody really knew about Lerner until his novels or <laughs> celebrated him at least with those fellowships. But still, I, I mean, you know, that doesn't neither here nor there. I'm just like, you know, I feel like for somebody to frame it this way is to diminish the art itself. And of course, when you diminish it, that makes it easier than to write a thing. Oh, well, poetry well, doesn't matter. I... Uh, it's all just a record well, of it's failure. Just, it, yeah, it's easy because no matter what you fail, right? So right. There, it sort of, even later when he talks about a bad poem and you know, references what Wikipedia, I guess, calls um, the worst poem in the English language or something like that. Even then, it feels like he levels the field, right? There is no longer this great distance between the greatest poems and, like, even mediocre or, like, the worst poems. Well, that's what I mean. I think it's right? a dishonest portrayal. I think he's being a little disin disingenuous about that framing. 
And granted, like, I can see why he's saying it, of course, because it makes it easier to argue for what he's saying here. But, like, it's not actually grappling with, like, the issue where it's like, well, yeah, well, most poems. Well, yeah, I don't poems... think it ever actually does. I don't yeah. think it ever actually grapples with the distinction between what we would celebrate as really good poetry and what makes poetry, you know, stick around. And what poems tend to fall away and maybe that's because a lot of what has tended to fall away has done just that yeah um but he also like yeah i i just i (sighs) I, I take problem with this well it's all just a record of failure so it doesn't really matter and i just i just i'm just that's such a cop-out to me like that's such a doesn't say it doesn't really matter but he it does it is like this sweeping claim that sort of paints over, you know, the edges that would define like, you know, what we would call really good poetry from what we would call really, you know, kind of shitty poetry. Because I am And I'm sure there are plenty of people who would, um, I like, and I've heard people say, you know, there, there is no, good and bad poetry right <laughs> these are not usually like poets <laughs> that i hear yeah. this from yeah well but... that's what i mean I, I i i'm sympathetic to it because i agree that yeah most poems are a record of failure most are like 99 <laughs> percent. you know like yeah yeah but you know i think Even of good poets I right, think by right. taking that, well, yeah, I mean, nobody can write a masterpiece every single time, but that's, I think, taking that framework of ignoring that 1% of what we would call great or non-failing poems in learner's words, poems that succeed, I guess, instead of fail, like not acknowledging that, I think, is a weakness in this argument because it's like, okay, if you're not going to acknowledge that there are poems that I would call, or that what I would say are not failures then, you know, you're kind of diminishing the entire point of the art. Like, you're kind of ignoring the entire point of the art. And I, that's kind of my... I'll, I'll keep bringing this up as we go through this book here, but it's like, he keeps kind of doing that. Like, he keeps kind of diminishing the art form in order to make this kind of, I would call, easy uh, claim. It's easy to say shit. You can say whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, uh, like... <sighs> He says a lot of shit on page nine too. I mean, okay, like he goes on to talk about Yeah, let's get to the actual you know, virtual. Should yeah. you get should you get the <laughs> should you get the the book? Right? Uh you can find his discussion of the virtual and the actual beginnings probably on page eight, about halfway down. Um right where we left off, you know, the poem is always a record of failure. There is an undecidable conflict between the poet's desire to sing an alternative world and, as Grossman puts it, the resistance to alternative making inherent in the materials of which any world must be composed. Okay, that's a mouthful. It's a lot. But essentially, you know, I think if we're, like, going to dumb this down to, like, be where we need it to be for learners' purposes... Um... Is this essentially just uh, between the desire for what the poet wants language to be and what it actually does? Or is this the difference between uh, 
what we hope for or what our ambition is and what our actually like our actual abilities can accomplish. Like I'm not ever fully sure of that. <laughs> That's all I say. Yeah. I took a little bit of issue with the singing metaphor. I mean, this whole paragraph I take issue with just because it's so for such a a densely worded thing like in this otherwise really casually put together or I, I don't know like this essay feels sort of casual it all like alternates between being like personal and then jumping into sort of historical references right it goes back and forth it kind of flirts with making a um, point yeah well, my yeah. problem yeah the saying you know the poet's desire to sing an alternative alternative world Again, that's a framing that I'm kind of like, uh, is that the poet's desire? Yeah. Uh, alternative world? Yeah, I mean... it's like, he means the transcendental, right? Like, I assume that's what he means. That's all I can assume he means, right? Um, is this, like, transcendent desire. And the, you know, inability of language to adequately capture that. But... He then says, so that was all, that was essentially, some of that was Roseman saying. So resistance to alternative making inherent in the materials of which any world must be composed. So by virtue of being, uh, you know, in the real world, we are not like, you know, transcendental beings, transcendent beings. I don't know. What would you call it? But... Yeah, I don't even know. I don't feel smart enough to unpack that all the way. But that's what I think it. it that's what I think Lerner is saying. And um, he talks about Grossman's idea of the virtual poem, what we might call poetry with a capital P. He says, right, the abstract potential of the medium. And that is as opposed to the actual poem, which necessarily betrays that impulse when it joins the world of representation. I was like, the world of representation. Like, I took issue with that, too, but, well, you that's, know. That's what I mean, because it's um, not almost... actually dealing with the reality of it. It's abstracting it to the point of, I would say, nonsense. But that's why I hate this kind of, like, oak oh, when the poet, you know, by the poet well, when called upon the to world, sing. the world of representation or, like, yeah. the medium of poetry is the world of representation right. like or the medium I don't know. of poetry get, like, representing up... something from the world of representation you know yeah i get hung up on like how to exactly understand like what certain things are like the world of fucking representation in this essay well, and of course we are in the within the first 10 pages of this 86 page essay so you know i was sort of having a hard time with <laughs> like the first chunk of this book yeah listeners um, uh, it doesn't get much better from there on out but my my issue with the singing metaphor the sing the poet singing <laughs> this, this this when you're called to sing i just i just can't stand this when you're defending an art form so you're defending this art form or at least that's what the title would imply uh, i think that's how this book is saying kind of... i'm called upon to sing is probably not the best defense if you're looking right. to like get newbies to come and join and, join up ranks and it's not so much because it's being like lofty or an idealist it's because it's another art form so singing is an entirely different art form than poetry wow although, okay 
I mean, it is. Yeah, it is. But like, they're so closely tied and so like often referenced together uh, historically that like that doesn't bother me. It just bothers me that bothers me the more romantic aspect of it without a sort of what feels to me like a more like a a meatier substance behind it. Yeah. And like I'll grant that too. I just it bothers me because it's just like you know is this is poetry so weak it needs another art form to prop it up in metaphor to explain it you know, it's just kind of like, and yeah I grant the fact okay yeah if poetry kind of came out of song initially, sure I just you know, I I don't think it's the same art form. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was originally an oral tradition, right? Sure. Um, rhyming was used to you know, help us memorize stories as we told them, hence the epic. But your move to write a poem, you feel called upon to sing because of that transcendent impulse. Um, Yeah, I mean, like, there are just so many words that we could strike from here, like transcendent, for example, or, uh, you know, the entire, you feel called upon to sing, right? You're moved to write a poem because of the impulse. There's some impulse in you to make something with language. Like, that would be adequate for me. Right. Well, that's what I always say, too. And I I think people do this. They use music, maybe because music is such an old art form, like, basically since the existence of time, right? Like, we've had music, or what you could call music, argue is music, singing, chanting, whatever it is. That's why I always said well, I use the I think example. Poetry, yeah. I used and I texted you this with the example where it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, you know, you took a film, sure, film came out of theater, and you could argue theater came out of poetry, sure, but like, you know, film and theater are not the same art form at all. Like, they're sure they're related, they they overlap in places, yeah. but it's entirely different. Yeah, like, I mean, not... I think it's the form that qualities of music for generally, it doesn't have to be singing. Right. But the qualities of music, I think, are maybe the most easily or, like, closely related to the qualities of poetry. Yeah. If we had to pick one. My entire thing with that is just a personal issue I have with the use of it. So take that with a grain of salt, listeners. But I think we do need to nail down this actual versus virtual. Because Lerner refers to this throughout the whole thing. So I mean, we just like I was when I first read this, I was like, "What the fuck is he talking about?" So I guess virtual. It's so. Yeah, what's yeah, virtual? Let's on. try to define. So I, I would it's say virtual the, is the. So literally, I think it's the idea of the thing, right? right the abstract it's potential. The right. Yeah. The you have in your mind the idea that you are going to create this poem and it has this magic and this beauty, and then you go to write it down and it's a sack of garbage. And that is the difference, friends, between the virtual and the actual. Um, but yeah, the I, the virtual could be read as the idea, and the actual could be read as the thing itself. So right? the actual is the realized, or what he would call representation of the virtual, or the abstract kind of potential or inspiration for a poem. Yeah, it's theory versus practice. Right. Or you could argue craft versus, yeah, abstract potential or inspiration theory. 
But yeah, I, okay, so if we're going to nail that down, he then goes on, if not a genuine poem, no such thing. And again, we have no idea yeah. what he means by genuine here. He's just claiming that there's no such what thing as a genuine poem. What the fuck does that mean? Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. This is one of the ones that made me the most frustrated because I was like, what is the definition of genuine? Like, is, is virtual synonymous here? Like, right. In that like i i just don't understand i can only understand what um genuine is here i mean the references to the genuine quote unquote uh in moore's poem right yeah a place for the genuine right I too dislike it, reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it. One discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine. Again, friends, harder to memorize than Shakespeare. But that's what he says. Says Lerner. Yeah, on page nine, if not a genuine poem, no such thing. A place for the genuine, whatever that might mean. So again, like he's he's just giving us this. He's not even trying to. He doesn't know what it means. Right. That's what I mean. It's like, well, if you don't know what it means, how the fuck can you argue for this? Like, if you can't define it. At least not for another however many pages he doesn't seem to know what it means and then, or he doesn't give us means yeah so it's good that we broke that down because listeners as you'll if you read this or if you're just using our <laughs> talking about this as an excuse to not read it he does come back to this actual verse virtual to kind of explain his position and it kind of hinges on this kind of broad abstraction that he uses here but I take even further issue on page nine, just below that, where he talks about, you know, why Grossman speaks to him. But he's like, like so many poets, I live in a space between what I am moved to do and what I can do and confront in that disconnect, not only my individual limitations, but also the structure of the art as I conceive it. And my whole thing with that was just like, this is every art form. Like, that's true for every art form. Like, you know what I mean? The fuck yeah, was man. that? <laughs> Oh, I just figured out that I could react with these like dumb emoji oh, things. God. Dude, emojis should just be wiped off the face of the earth. That's my take so on emojis. So I gave you this this clapping guy. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> but I was just like, this Get is it. every art form. Of course, the artist, writer, whatever you want to call it, of course they're stuck in this place between, yeah, what you want to do and then the limits of what you can actually do personally, and then also what the craft and structure allows you to do, right? This is where we kind of get to yeah, the limitations. Yeah, that's unfortunately... That's unfortunately the sad, sad chasm between ambition and talent. Not we all even, experience yeah. it. But I mean, that's literally... Or taste and talent. That's literally the art form. Like, he's just describing the art form. Like, every art form yeah, that exists. Yeah, that's what a lot of this yeah. is. It's just describing he's, the art form. Yeah, like, he's just describing... Just describing what poetry is. Yeah. Not only that, he like this is just oh. describing the actions of like, okay, if I'm trying to create art, well, this is what you're doing. You're living between this space where like, you know you have inspiration and then what you can actually achieve. So if you're just starting out, your inspiration is never going to be what you wanted on the page. You know, like the whole point is to use the limitations to actually do something with it, I would argue. But yeah, that's again, another just little aside that I have with his kind of, he makes a lot of these, he's kind of just throwing them in there. And this is why I kind of say like, it's not almost an argumentative essay. It's more of like just a personal reflection. He just kind of throws these lofty claims in here and just is like, yeah, just deal with that reader. Just deal with that claim. Uh, yeah. And actually... Can we pause for a second so I can go grab a battery? Yeah. But the next thing I have is the dentist story. I don't know if you want to keep that or skip it and go like. What page is the dentist story? Uh, 
I believe 11. Okay. So I'm almost there. I have a 10 few, to 11. few things I want to talk about where yeah. he, he kind of, I don't know. Yeah. He kind of talks about feelings. Does some bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Give me one second to Where's... grab a battery. I was also sweating balls, and I had to is your, uh, change. Is your heat still broken? No. I'm just fucking sweaty as shit. I'm a sweaty person. I just had so much under-tit sweat. Yeah. Before we move on to the de- the, <coughs> the dentist. <laughs> <coughs> it's like a Seinfeld episode. No, all right. Uh uh, I do take on page 10 there. I have another issue with this where again, he, he keeps diminishing the art. I feel like he keeps diminishing what poetry is in order to be able to make this claim. I feel like, and that's my biggest problem with this whole book. I'll keep saying it this whole fucking episode, but on page 10, when he talks about, um, the bitterness of poetic logic is particularly astringent because we were taught at an early age that we are all poets simply by virtue yeah. of being human. And I'm just like, dude, let you keep broadening and broadening, not just what a poem is, what a poet is, what the art form is. Like, and, and, and this hurts. This makes it so that he's making an incoherent argument, in my opinion, on this thing. Again, it requires this kind of decoupling from, you know, again, romanticizing the art into oblivion, essentially. But I just have this... I, it's, well, it's worth noting... It's worth noting here that this claim it comes about as a product of the whole you're a poet and you didn't even know it phrase. So that, you know, like the one that you say to children. That's what I wrote in my notes. I said, this is a child's um, understanding of poetry. This is a child's understanding of the art. This idea that we have feelings inside of us and that's what helps make us poets. And we all continue to believe that as we grow older, right. <laughs> that by virtue of being people... Yeah, and I, I just, I really, I, I think, and I used to see this in grad school where, like, you ask younger writers, people that are just getting into it, right, they're interested, they maybe want to take it a little further, go to grad school, all that kind of stuff, and it's always what I see, young, inexperienced writers making this claim, it's a feeling, right, like, they don't even know how to talk about this art form, because it's just a feeling they feel, and I get that, I'll grant that, you know, when you like a poem, it's an inherent feeling inside you, like this kind of being, we talked about this on the Bloom episode too, right? This kind of felt change, he called it, right? Like this uh, feeling mm-hmm. that grows inside of you, and I get that's your response, right? That's important, and that's important when you're close reading, talking about something, making a judgment on something, all of that. 
but I just feel like it's so simplistic. I mean, it's like a child's understanding of this, and it's being held up as this great... Well, yeah, and we never talk here about how you know if it's good, which is, you know, on the one hand, that's also seemingly not the argument he's trying to make, but it is also not clear up front, right, that we're not going to get there. Well, I think the fatal right? flaw... Like, because it doesn't become entirely clear. Like, it isn't until maybe, like, halfway through reading the thing that you're like, okay, so like we clearly are going to keep coming back to this idea of defending or denouncing poetry. And that is ultimately like what he's trying to create a thesis around, um, which I think is fine. Like, I think, you know, that's largely interesting, even if it's not executed in exactly the way that I would like. Yeah. I, but yeah, it's when we get these moments of like, you know, these claims about what the nature of poetry is without ever really talking about why any one poem has this particular power. And maybe like that's not maybe it's not about like the power that an individual poem can have, but like this power of the abstract idea of poetry and i think that is maybe more what he's talking about throughout this whole essay and like if he would just start with like a subtitle that's just like the idea of poetry i feel like that would put us on the right track i mean for context in this section he's not even talking about poetry he's talking about just like what drives a poet essentially and again i think he's diminishing that but he's he's really broadening this to where he says you're a poet how and this is the bottom of page 10 you're a poet, however, whether or not you know it, because to be part of a linguistic community, to be hailed as a you at all, is to be endowed with poetic capacity. I get what he's saying. I get what he means, that you have to start oh, from yeah. this place of feelings in order to even compose or understand a poem. Sure, I get that. But he's just saying that, like, this 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 equation, like, he equates it with this individual, like, just being an individual who has feelings makes you, like, a poetic capacity. I get that. I understand yeah. the intention behind it and the meaning behind it, but I'm just like, this is not a helpful way to talk about the art form or the practitioners of that art form. Like, it's just, you're, you keep diminishing no. what it is these practitioners do and what the art does by saying, oh, if you're just a person with feelings, you know, you're a poet and you don't know it. Kind of stupid shit. Like, again, this, like, this is childish almost. Like, I can't believe this is held yeah. up as some type of great lofty ideal. I can't believe it. But I mean, again, I can believe it because, again, I, poetry's dead, right? Like, <laughs> well, so, yeah, he goes from that, right, to talking about his dentist and, like, oh, like having someone like your dentist ask you, quickly like, before oh, are, are, you're a poet? <laughs> before we go to dentist, yeah, um, go he says, because so, because to be part of a linguistic community, what is linguistic community? I was just like, what is that? <laughs> what is a linguistic community? I... A shared language. Assume that's just, yeah. That's all I can read that. <laughs> Anybody who speaks English, anybody who can read and understand English, even if you can't speak it, right? It's dramatic. It's overly dramatic. Yeah. It's like it's very. I I don't. I I'll say it's very like internet dramatic. Like this kind of like hyperbolic exaggeration in order to make a point, and I just think it's weak. 
like he's yeah on the next page in 11 he says the ghost of that romantic conjunction makes the falling away from poetry a falling away from the pure potentiality of being human and i'm just like oh dramatic much that is very dramatic like <laughs> that is you're being dramatic as fuck dude and this one he gets to yeah uh, of being an actual person in a concrete historical situation your hands in my mouth <laughs> <laughs> like okay dude you're being very dramatic yeah, go to this dentist this yeah he talks dentist. about the dentist and like you know it feels like a defense of the embarrassed poet a little bit right? <laughs> exactly that's what it is yeah exactly like yeah. that's you know that on the one hand everybody has this capacity to be a poet but then you know when it comes to actually being a poet there's a sense of embarrassment and you know if someone asks you like oh like what do you do and you're like i'm a poet it's like there's something uncomfortable there. And, like, I mean, I assume that's largely because, like, you know you like poetry and you also know that most people do not. Right? Like, most people that you probably encounter, like, just in your day-to-day -day life, if you are not somebody who's teaching in an MFA program, like, you know, or whatever, are not going to be people who are like, oh, yeah. I too love poetry. <laughs> um, then worse than that is asking like, oh, are you a published poet? You know, like um, that's the only really true measure of whether or not you're a poet. And I think <sighs> Lerner also knows that this isn't true, right? Like, right. Um, but understands also that like the, and this, I agree with him, right? Like right, there's, yeah. you know, like this weird, um, like, you know, a public knowledge that, you know, well, if you are of any value, then you must have been published. You must be read by other people, right? Or else you are not really a poet, are you? Um, and he says, everybody can write a poem, but has your poetry the distillation of your innermost being been found authentic and intelligible by others, a readership. Um, and <laughs> he talks about uh, the quote, bafflingly persistent association of poetry and fame um, and says, no poets are famous among the general population. Which is true. Right. So I, you know, he sort of touches on, like, who actually reads poetry, who the audience of poetry actually is. Um, and none of this is actually, a like, he doesn't treat this as at all really as being about audience, right? But about this idea of what a poet is yep. um, to the poet. <clears throat> right, which is why I would call this more of a personal kind of reflective essay than anything else, than more of like an argumentative but he makes that claim again on page 12. There is no genuine poetry. There is only, after all, and at best, a place for it. I'm not entirely sure what that means. And again, he really doesn't give us a lot of more offering in this. There is no genuine poetry. Does that mean there's no honest poetry? There's no real poetry, authentic, as Bloom would say? It's like, what does that mean? There is no yeah, genuine poetry. What, how can you make that claim and then not tell us what it is? Like, I just, 
and I guess the people could argue he tells us what it is. is. You could argue, I yeah, I can only read it as synonymous with virtual poetry, which like is, the idea of poetry, right? Is so, which is something that doesn't poetry. exist, like which is poetry that doesn't <laughs> exist. So it's like this. Not tangibly. Yeah, it's it's this. Well, it doesn't because I mean, if we're just gonna say, oh, every moment of inspiration is poetry, again, that is so broad as to be yeah. meaningless. Like it's not. There is no genuine poetry. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. Like, and, and I guess yeah. He, if I'm trying to understand what he's saying, if I'm really trying to, okay, give him the benefit of the doubt. What does he mean by genuine? He means pure potentiality of being human, like something like that. Like again, these again, these lofty kind of ideals that people just repeat and I, I, I always struggle with this because I'm like wait a minute what are we saying when we say something like there is no genuine poetry like and why would you want to argue that in the first place if you're trying to argue for people to love poetry <laughs> like again you're diminishing it to say you should love it because it's like not doesn't actually matter or it's not actually genuine or it's never going to be it's all failure you know so you shouldn't be mean about it you shouldn't make a judgment that's going to hurt somebody's feelings or make somebody disagree with you whatever it is I don't know. I, I don't know. I guess I should move away from that because he, ke he keeps coming back up and I don't need to mention every instance of him bringing it back up. Yeah, I mean, I really think that we can only read it as being, or at least I, I, you know, and I am open to, you know, alternative readings of this, but if we're to assume that he gets the word genuine for more, right, and he sort of situates it around this idea of the virtual and the actual and you know, like, I, I can only assume that the genuine, I, I don't know, like, maybe I'm not saying this clearly. And maybe it's because I don't fucking understand it. <laughs> that, but I think... I feel like I have very little to cling to there. Well, that's what I mean. He doesn't give us that. And if he's, if you're going to write something and you're going to call it the hatred of poetry and you're going to have a Guggenheim and you're going to have all this stuff that, like, makes everybody listen to you about it, I just expected a little bit more rigor if you're going to make a claim like this, not just like a personal reflection on craft, but he gets to this too. Another thing that he says on page 13, where he says, um, uh, you know, he says, you know, this isn't the only way to think about it or that everybody's not going to think about this to the same degree or that it's the best way of thinking about poetry. But I am convinced that the embarrassment or suspicion or anger that is often palpable in such meetings derives from this sense of poetry's tremendous social stakes sense of poetry's tremendous social stakes and i was just like what is that <laughs> again it's this lofty claim claiming that everybody yeah, hates poetry um, but it also has tremendous social stakes i don't know how you square those two when you're trying to seriously write about this uh which again would lead me to believe that he's not seriously trying to write about this but you know we can't make assumptions about that but yeah, so yeah. I'm just like, does, where is this? This is on page top of page thirteen. He kind of the sentence kind of starts at the bottom of twelve, but second line yeah, in page thirteen, okay. where he's talking, you know, the the you know, the assumptions about present poetry are present for everyone, and he's saying this is one of the assumptions that this sense of poetry's tremendous social stakes, and I just don't know what those tremendous yeah. social stakes are. I don't know what he means by it. He doesn't offer a clarification. He just says that poetry the thing that nobody reads it has tremendous social stakes like i said i think it's the kind of claim you can only make if you only interact with people in those kind of circles like academic harpers new yorker reading kind of people that give out 
MacArthur and Guggenheim fellowships type of thing. You know what I mean? Like you could only make that assumption and think that it makes sense if you already romanti- like romanticize this thing beyond what it actually is. So yeah, I don't know what the social stakes are for what we would call poetry or how what those Well, are. yeah, he says that poetry denotes an impossible demand, right? Um, I want to go back a little bit and see if we can unpack this. All right. Um, whatever we think of particular poems, poetry is a word for the meeting place of the private and the public, the internal and the external. My capacity to express myself poetically and to comprehend such expressions is a fundamental qualification for social recognition. So this is where he's like talking about... Um, the like need to be recognized as like a poet, but specifically as a published poet, right? Like as sort of the need to be acknowledged as like existing, I guess. <laughs> right. Right. He goes back to that phrase of like, yeah, I'm a poet and you know it now. Right. He talks about getting um, all of these people who like, um yeah on the next page he talks about having been the editor for a small magazine and getting all of these submissions um from like people who he says have clearly never read the publication so i'm assuming we're really not familiar with what kinds of work they accepted um but whose quote um cover letters expressed a remarkable desperation to have their poems printed anywhere. Some of these letters, tens of them explained that the poet in question was suffering from a terminal condition and wanted, needed to see his or her poems published before he or she died. Um, Yeah. It's funny to me that people actually do that in cover letters, but of course, why wouldn't they, right? Yeah, and he says, I'm not mocking these poets. I'm offering them as examples of the strength of the implicit connection between poetry and the social recognition of the poet's humanity. So here he's, I think, you know, when we get this um, right before that, when he's talking about the um, sense of poetry's tremendous social stakes, Right, even though it maybe isn't hashed out here just quite enough yet. I think he maybe means to discuss poetry as what Grossman calls sort of like the person making power of poetry or um, uh, or, or the presence making power of poetry. I don't remember word for word. Um, but yeah the appearance of a person, right? It's sort of, is how he, he talks about um, a central power of poetry. Well, he doesn't say this, right. he doesn't say this because again, I think this entire argument is confused and therefore learners confused. But what he's talking about here is this idea that there's a reverence around poetry and he kind of glosses over that as he calls it hatred but there's a like just an inherent reverence when you mention poetry when you mention you're a poet uh people just do this automatic kind of referential 
oh, that must be important, right? Like he mentions the reading of poems at weddings, you know, things like that. That's when people break out poems, all that kind of stuff, because we hold this kind of reverence around it. And I think he, yeah, I just think he's he's glossing over one of the huge points here is that <clears throat> it is this kind of referential. It's like, uh, what I mean, I'm trying to think of an example of like, you know, like somebody in charge, we just give them kind of reverence. Well, to... I think it's also, yeah, I think, okay, I also think that maybe there's this thing that is common and, you know, among people who read even, right? Um We've seen this all over the place with people who just say, I don't understand it. It seems too difficult. It's too much work. I don't want to read it, which is like fucking fine. <laughs> like, I mean, if you're not like a teacher in an MFA program, in which case I would argue it's probably not fine. And for the sake of your own like um, reputation among your students, maybe get a little bit familiar because if you were one of those teachers who said that to me i probably judged you very harshly yeah it's still it's this we say it's diff they say it's difficult because it, it it is like when you learn about it in school i think this is what he's getting at and not saying either he's purposely ignoring this or he is just straight up ignorant to this or just doesn't understand what he's saying so it's like okay we're taught that it's this difficult thing, right? That it's this thing that high-minded, lofty ideals exist in, right? That that's what we're taught. We're taught that from a very young age. And that's what people experience poetry as. Uh, one, because it does require active reading, if you want to call it that, right? Like active engagement with the reader. People don't want to do that. They want to passively enjoy something. They want to just have it wash over. Yeah, poetry them. makes demands of a reader. Right, exactly. There's right? that. So that's one of the things that's kind of inherent in this. Oh, this is one thing that's harder to read than a novel or harder to read than like, you know, an article or something like that. Therefore, people just associate it with this kind of reverence. Like, oh, that's beyond me. Therefore, it's kind of reverent. Or, or I mean, I don't want to use the word sacred, but it's kind of the same type of thing, right? I don't know. And he uses yeah, that also, example. Like... Go for it. Yeah, sorry reading it's just not that popular and you know like if it's not that popular among you know 18 to 25 year olds chances are like you're not first gonna dip a toe in for the most part most people probably not gonna like suddenly get into it at, like age 40 yeah right like so, yeah, like most of your peers, unless you exist in like a sort of small community or if you've like m sort of kept friends through your life who are like avid readers or writers or probably both of poetry. Um, yeah, they're not going to recognize your name, even if you are relatively well known. Right. Like I yeah. can name so many pretty well known poets to you know, people I know who are very avid readers and mostly read fiction and often literary fiction and have no idea who a lot of poets are. Very famous ones. Yeah, and I think this also kind of it kind of plays into his thesis of he would say there's no genuine poetry. I would just say that most people don't get anything out of it, right? Like most people are passive fans of art. And on page 16, he gives that example of, you know, if you admit that you're a poet on a plane or like waiting for a flight or something, just talking to somebody sitting next to you on a bus. 
they will often ask you, and when you were foolish enough to identify, this is on page 16, and, and when you were foolish enough to identify yeah. yourself as a poet, your interlocutor will often ask, will often ask you to name your favorite poets. Uh, you know, you give a couple examples. Uh, then he says, you know, the person will squint as if searching his memory and nods as if he could almost recall the work and the name, even though, of course, he can't. None of the hundreds of non-poet acquaintances who have asked you this sort of question ever can. And he said, but I've decided, and I'm deciding as I write, that I accept that look, that I value it. I love that the non-poet is conditioned to believe that the name and work are almost within reach. And even though the only poems he's encountered in the last few decades have been at weddings and funerals. Uh, I love how it seems like he's on the verge of recalling a specific line before he slowly shakes his head and concedes. I've never heard of him or her. Doesn't ring a bell. Uh, another. Uh, or it's um, like being polite. I'm trying to like engage you. Well, that's what I mean. <laughs> you know? That's when I read that thing. I, I was just like, this is true for every art form, though. Like, this is just polite conversation, yeah. and he's trying to extrapolate this kind of, oh, people hate poetry. It's like, nah, dude. If I started rattling off indie bands to somebody, I said I was a musician and I'm in an indie band or whatever, and started rattling, you know, just non top forty artists, nobody would know who I'm talking about. Okay. Like it's a normal reaction because most people are just passive consumers of art. Like they're not these, like most people have a terrible taste in music because they're not actually like avid music fans. They just kind of passively listen to whatever's played to them on the radio. Right. Like this is the same thing for every art form. Most people have a terrible taste in movies because they don't actually care that much about engaging with it, right? They just want to passively enjoy it and then move on and be like, oh, it made me feel excited when it blew up, you know? That's all they get, right? Same thing for poetry, yeah. but he's talking about, he's trying to make the claim that poetry is very specific about it, blah, 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 and people will pretend, I mean, people will pretend to see movies when you bring them up. People will pretend to have read books when you bring them up. Like most academics do when you mention something like Moby yeah, Dick or whatever. Dude. Yeah, like it's not like this is just a normal, it's a human thing. Or like if not that, pretend to be interested in reading it. Like, right? Like, I mean, which is like so common and like we have all done that. And like I am sure that there, that, you know, a lot of my initial interaction with reading actual poetry was a phase of pretending to be interested in something I largely had yet to understand. And through the familiarity that I, you know, came to acquire over time with it was right. how I began to understand and love it. Yeah. Right. There are poems that you can hate and then you read them 12 times and you end up liking them and the same. Like, I mean, it, it's a matter of familiarity. Uh, like, hang on, I'm gonna grab juice real quick. Yeah. Am I making a point at all, or am I just like on some random fucking tangent? I feel like I, I start making, so. like I start having an idea, and then, like, see, I actually think I am exactly like Ben Lerner <laughs> mm. in a lot of ways, and that, uh, like, I feel like this just reminds me of my undergrad thesis. Are you much afraid? Except more <laughs> successful. Yeah. Which is really sad really depressing yeah and this is i do this i guess that's why i appreciated kind of holiday's takedown is he's a little kind of snarky about it and i'll get into what how i feel about internet snark and how it's kind of invading everything but like yeah i think he kind of takes that down very well with like a little of this you know I don't yeah know. It's, it's, are, it's, it's childish big... epiphanies yeah things that are known but Since you're we're... pretending that there's some type of epiphany you know what i mean 
Yeah. Or things that are known now, and normal. Since we're at an hour and a half. Since we're at an hour and a half and we're on page 16. <laughs> do you want to briefly discuss which points we definitely want to go over? Because I definitely have a bunch of pages of notes. And I know that I should skip some of them. Well, a lot, I mean, I don't, I don't, I didn't mention or mark anything else in my notes till page 25. If you just want to keep moving along. Okay. Um, I wouldn't mind doing like a quick overview of what he says next, because I think he just gives a number of like historical defenses and denunciations of poetry. Right. So we sort of shift back to that argument. He talks about Plato, essentially he talks about, so he was talking about sort of the social power of poetry, right? And he goes on to say, um, to talk about Plato and his sort of desire to exile the poet, right? Um, uh, I, I dismissed And that the power <laughs> of poetry implied by Plato's idea that, you know, poets have no place in democratic society. And then goes on to say, you know, Plato might be read as a, a defense of capital P poetry from poems. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and he talks about Sir Philip Sidney's defense of poesy. He talks about the genre of defending poetry, which I think we could have maybe opened with a lot sooner. Like, again, this is where I feel like he's actually trying to get at something. We're going to keep saying that this could and have been has, a great kind of defense, like an overview of all the recent articles or just a couple historical ones well, through time periods. It doesn't have to periods. even be a defense. I think it could be a really interesting just like, uh, you know, sort of study of these historical denunciations and defenses of poetry and right. see what he can parse from that. And it's an interesting Instead topic. of sort of trying to pull in Marianne Moore which she maybe could have done like but maybe not as sort of the upfront kind of tagline right. well, I would always say I like, um, well because that requires a lot of work dude if somebody were to put a book like that together I mean that would take years of research thinking well, rewriting. and he makes sure that you know that he didn't want to do that because he talks about because um, it's too much work. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. He talks and he's already about got his, his million dollars. Admittedly desultory reading in my admit admittedly desultory way across the centuries. I have come to believe that the a large part of the appeal of the defense as a genre is that it is it is itself a kind of virtual poetry. Yeah. Uh, it allows you to describe the virtues of poetry without having to write poems that have succumbed to the bitterness of the actual. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I, 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 the Plato stuff disinterested me so much. I was almost disgusted by it and just didn't take any notes on it. <laughs> I mean, I just, again, like, yeah, I don't know. I was just curious to see who, you know, in the places where he chose to reference historical figures or particular poets, uh, I was really interested to read those bits and how he sort of squared them with his own ideas. Um, but yeah, so he sort of says, yeah, you know, I'm kind of like reading casually, but uh, I've, you know, this sort of 
defense as a genre allows us to engage with this like capital P or virtual poetry or the idea of poetry without having to deal with the failure of actual poetry, which I think is true. I think to call the genre itself poetry <laughs> in any way is kind of silly Unless, like, at at that point, you're just, it's like, okay, a lyric essay, sure. <laughs> Fine. To say that it, but yeah, like, to say, okay, it allows you a way to engage with the idea of poetry without having to actually, like, write a failing poem on, you know, right. yourself. Yeah, that's accurate. Um, it just takes it, I think, a step too far by trying to say, it itself is, you know, um, an attempt at poetry in any way. Yeah. <clears throat> on page 25, it's the same thing. We, he, I mean, you know, these ideas just get expanded on as we go through where he says, um, page 25, last sentence in that um, first paragraph, when we experience a poem's radical failure, we must be measuring it against some ideal, some poem. And I'm sympathetic. This might also like I'm sympathetic to the idea of measuring against an ideal. I think that's true, right? Like that's what we're doing. But I think he glances over this or attributes it to some mystical humanness or something where it's like and I think again, the holiday essay that we get into, he kind of takes him to task for this, where he's just like, are we comparing it against some imaginary ideal? Are we comparing it against what we would consider to be exquisite poems? Like, <laughs> exquisite yeah, exactly. examples. Like, like, it's where, not does a, this, yeah. where does this idea of uh, this, like, perfect idea of, like, the perfect poem, where does that come from? Is it just, like, this thing that came out of nowhere from, like, your weird transcendent impulse? Or did it come from somewhere because you have at some point in your life been forced to encounter like Shakespeare. And I think he's granting this, right? He's like, we must be measuring it against some ideal, some poem. And it's like, yes, like we are. <laughs> right. Like, isn't that like, that's what I mean. It, this kind of becomes like, uh, not even like the hatred of poetry. It just becomes like a hatred of judgment. Like you're like, he's saying, Oh, you're not allowed to judge this because otherwise, well, and even if you do, it's your judgment of it that allows you to engage with this virtual poetry, this capital P poetry, this, you know, transcendent, otherworldly, mystical, um, intangible thing, right? That even, and, and, you know, he says something that's relatively smart, I think, that, like, you know, some of the most ambitious poems, when they fail have the greatest echo of like their possibility, but it's like, because they fail so wildly. <laughs> right. Right. Um, because they lack in craft or in skill, you know, what they might have in ambition. Yeah. But he leans into this ideal rather than the fact that there is probably some poem that realistically most people like, have encountered like if you decide at some point that you're going to write poetry as you know even like as a a teenager or as like a young adult whatever um 
like chances are it didn't it was either because you were like writing some emo shit in your diary <laughs> or because like you encountered something and it might be like something lame all right i'm not gonna tell you what's lame i know it was lame for me all right but like because you encountered like whatever was going to be your sort of beginner poems right whatever was uh. going to like initiate that interest for you Whatever it is. And it might just be like, you know, I mean, maybe it isn't. Maybe it's just like writing some bullshit in your in your diary. But for I think for most people who choose to stay in that world as they continue to get older, probably have actual poems that they actually measure themselves against. Yeah. Well, this is where we get because it is subjective right here. But I'm just yeah, I mean, the, the, the solution to having like all art forms are subjective judging. I mean, the Olympics, all that kind of stuff is happening. Like, all those, there's just, I mean, there's some, there's some events that are straight up, like, okay, timing, like, it's a race, right? But then the other events are just, like, the, the dance events, the skating events, like, those are judged by a panel of subjective people. Like, that judgment is so important to be able to compare this to what we would hold as an ideal or if it's not an ideal, which I would argue it's not, I could argue that like what holiday does is point to specific things that say, no, this is not a failure. Look at it. Like, this is what we're comparing it to this specific thing. Like that's what we're comparing it to. And, you know, it talks about meals, right? When we say, Oh, that food wasn't that good. It's like, yeah, because the, some food is exquisite and then other food is just okay. Right. Other food, some food is yep. terrible. <laughs> like, it's just what it is. So I just, I don't like this idea of using the fact that it's just an attempt or that it's just like, you know, unmeasurable, unconscious kind of virtual thing in our heads is the same thing as like this. Like, I just, yeah, I think it's just a disingenuous comparison to make a point on that. But yeah, I don't know. Fucking Ben Lerner. My next thing, I took, I think, uh, page 30. I don't know. Did you have anything else on that? Oh, uh, no. He keeps saying this, defeat time. Yeah. Transcend representation and well, defeat time. Yeah, I mean, well, he just means... And, uh... Like, I mean, I think that we see echoes of this everywhere, and it's not a new idea at all, is that, you know, to write anything especially if you're trying to publish something is like, you know, an attempt at some kind of immortality. You can say that of like any kind of fame. Is that what he's talking about? I think so. The kind of, you know, being Maybe. remembered. Cause he's mentioned, he mentioned it before in the I beginning. Mean... Or to like, is it just this whole, you know, mystical otherworldliness thing. I'm not entirely sure because I would say, I would say the, the logical. It would help if we had some sample poems. Right. It's which all he evidence only has free. one. Yeah. It's admittedly a terrible. Well, he has a couple and one of them is admittedly one of the worst poems that anyone could choose to discuss. Imply a poem that could transcend representation and defeat time. And then he says, the demand I'm making of McGonagall is impossible. Yeah. And I'm well, just like... Well, this is, again, like, right? Po because poetry is impossible, right? That's what that's his 
you know, little refrain, poetry is impossible. Actual poems are not, but they always fail because they are not virtual poems. And because they're impossible. They are not the idea of the poem because that is impossible to accomplish on paper. Like I said, I, I, I just Which don't... is just like, it's just an unhelpful, it's right. a largely, it just feels like such an unhelpful argument for understanding poetry. Well, because it is. Like, it's, I, I don't understand that transcend representation and defeat time. Because he's, I, I think he's talking, he's trying to use defeat time as something more than just like being remembered or, or having well, something. Well, he talks about Keats here too. Right. And the same way that Keats talks about like um, like he talks about Ode to a Grecian Urn and says literary form cannot actually produce the higher music Keats imagines. Right. It can only figure it which is in a sense what McGonagall manages to do by being so bad. So we're talking about McGonagall's uh, William Topaz McGonagall's The Tay Bridge Disaster. Um who of whom Lerner says his ambition outpaces his ability, um, which is what I guess he tells us makes the terribleness of the poem so palpably felt and the distance, quote, the distance between the virtual and the actual so palpable, but compares it to Keats, right? Like, yeah, he's just trying to take a bad poem and a really good or like a poem that is cherished by many and talk about how they both gesture toward the same thing they both gesture toward this what he would call or like you know virtual and he uses the word uh virtuality (laughs) or like virtualizing to talk about you know what um poets do in poems he talks about this with dickinson which i actually would uh, you know i don't agree with his terms very much but i agree that you know the way that he talks about the way that she uses the dash and how it sort of you know is a space for like this unsayable thing right which again i don't agree with the terms that he uses but like um that there's like a gesture there that isn't easily put into language i would agree with right there is like a silence there but i think you can talk about that in a way that is it's just like he makes a statement about all three of these poets right he says they make a place for the genuine by producing a negative image of the ideal poem we cannot write in time Um, so for McGonagall, it's writing a poem that is so bad that you can only see the ambition behind it, right? And how it fails. And in that, it shows us an image of, you know, what it was attempting to be, the virtual thing that it attempted to be, but failed to be. Like I said, this is so Uh, abstract. With Keats, it's, yeah. But I mean, like, that's what he's trying to say, it seems like. I mean, right? so he's, he's talking using... about poetry as the possibility of poetry, not as actual poems, which is like the thing that I come back to that's really frustrating. Yeah. Well, that's my whole thing where it's like he's using time. So he's using this thing to defeat time and he's using that a couple different ways because a couple pages later he talks about suspending time. And I'm just like, dude, what the fuck are you saying, dude? Like, like what the fuck is yeah, this Yeah, I saying? think that... 
Like well, time I, I is a know. very fucking like. It just fails <laughs> to adequately talk about the experience of reading poetry, of, of actually like feeling connected to what poetry is and does, and like how you know when a poem succeeds and how you know when a poem fails. Except, I guess all poems fail, so why bother talking about it? I, I think guess. it's telling that he doesn't um, mention Bloom or quote Bloom at all uh, <laughs> about what he's trying to talk about. Yeah, stuff he like does. That. He, yeah, he talks about Plato. He talks about, um, who else does he talk about? Oppen. He talks about that shitty book of the best bad verse. Yeah. Which I'm like, why do you, why are you reading that? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he just, he talks about, let me see, yeah, we're still on the Tabridge disaster. I haven't changed pages in a while. What page are you on? Um, I'm on 37. Did you say on page 37? Oh, it was uh, well, the last thing that I was talking about on 37 is so he talks about, you know, these three poets and how they make a place for the genuine, which again, he does not define by producing a negative image of the ideal poem we cannot write in time. Yeah, and he goes back to uh, this language of. Um, I mean, his whole essay just uses the language of of Moore and of Grossman. Um, and in Moore's case, I'm like just constantly kind of confused by it, right? I too dislike it. This is at the bottom of 37 and on to 38. That too in the Moore is important. Poet and reader of poet or poet and reader of poetry are united in a suspicion of the song that any quote earthly poet and the and the and that suspicion is the ground for an intuition of the ideal the hatred of poetry is internal to the art because it is the task of the poet and poetry reader to use the heart or to use the heat of that hatred to burn the actual off the virtual like fog. Yeah, dude, my I highlighted that, and I was like, "That's quite a claim to make without backing it up." Like, is that true? Do we agree with that? Quite. It? I mean, it's just like such a mouthful. Um, because poet and reader of poetry united in a suspicion of the song of any earthly poet. I mean, I would agree on that first piece. 
right? We are all suspicious of our, or I am, you know, I think that as poets, we sometimes make very lofty claims. I think this is where, you know, Ben Werner is maybe like true to the nature of like what poets tend to do, right? Like we will say things in poems that just as though they are true, which are often just not necessarily entirely true. I think that happens a lot. Yeah. Um, and that suspicion is the ground for an intuition of the ideal. So that by being suspicious, we have this idea that there must be some ideal truth or like some other more true thing, more genuine thing. Right. I mean, the, I think what he's actually saying is that there's like an idea that it's not good enough. That <laughs> yeah. so this poem and this statement or whatever it is I'm writing in this moment is just not good enough. And I, the poet, know that. And you, the reader, are suspicious of that. We are united in our suspicion that I am not adequate. <laughs> so is mean, that what, what we're saying? What he's calling yeah. hatred in this sense is judgment, right? Like that's what he's yeah. like. Like, I think the hatred of poetry is something else. I think this is how we judge poems. I think people who, like, claim they hate poetry don't actually. They just don't want right. to engage with it, yeah. which is different. Exactly. I think that indifference. the I hatred think... of poetry is different than the hatred of individual poems, which is also not discussed at any length yeah and holiday says this in his article too where he says well, i think what Bert learner means by hatred in most cases is indifference i mean like it's not like these people oh i hate it i hate it it's like do you know how much energy it takes to hate something like this is why I'm, like i mean yeah this is why we make fun of haters online like, yeah. who hate individual poems the people right. who most hate poetry are poets yeah right like the people that most dislike or at least I think like, you know, the people who I talk to when I read a poem and I'm just like, no, this isn't for me, but feel the need to share it. I'm going to share it with someone who I know also writes poems. Right. Yeah. And I think this is the point in the essay where I was pretty well, frustrated. Sometimes it's bad to share with my family. Yeah. I was pretty frustrated with the essay at this point. And then I think it kind of just devolves from here where then he starts getting into, again, the fervor of 2016, uh, all that kind of stuff, like the stuff that was in the air, right, everybody was talking about. Yeah, white male nostalgia. White male nostalgia, yeah. Something that he said. The white one male. particular critic. Dude, the white male hated himself. One, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he cites one denunciation. He talks a lot about Whitman here and Whitman's sort of, you know, democratic project, so he Dude, calls it. Right? The claims about Whitman, I've been telling you this, this whole week, I've been reading this and texting you. The claims about Whitman, I thought were egregiously out of left field i don't know how he got a lot of these claims and again well, some cause... of them are crazy just like i mean he makes some <laughs> claim at some point about how the way that and like you can follow this statement like it's fine right there's right. no way and this is something again that like i would have done that i think poets tend to do like we get excited we think like metaphor 
yes. Right? And it turns out that to just, like, actually be a little bit obnoxious to most readers. That, like... Um, and maybe it was my frustration at certain moments by this point. Because, again, Lerner is smart and he dances around something that is a point that ultimately I think he gets to, even if he doesn't make it that effectively. I think he's really intelligent and maybe, you know, in places too much so for, like, you know, too much so for his own good. Um, But... What's the same thing? It's this projection. Yeah, he he says this thing about Whitman and his lines and how they're so long and they're always running over um, the right margin as a kind of virtualizing his poetry. And I was like, is it or is it like a disruption of (laughs) what was the dominant craft of that moment? Well, yeah, I just, I just, again, it's this, it's this. Same thing I said when we talked about Bloom is like I see a lot of this in, in especially when I talk about like poetry scholarship, it's this forcing what I would call kind of unprovable projections onto like we're asking the art form to do more than it's capable of doing, and we're just like pretending that's not the case. Like we're just pretending that it's capable of doing whatever we want it to do, which okay, I'm sympathetic. Some places maybe it is right. Maybe we can do that. That's part of the art form, sure. But like when I think he, we're just trying to be nice. Well, that and I think like when he makes claims like you know the most immediate and fastest like the power of the art is the most immediate and fastest way to achieve socio political reform. I just like I don't know how you can make that claim. Like, can you give me an example? Yeah, does of he what actually a, make yeah. that claim? Where does he make that claim? Uh, page thirty nine. Uh, what page are you? Yeah, so is he actually making that claim or is it like a hypothetical of some kind? It's in reference. I don't remember. It's when he's talking about the theory of but the avant. But I remember avant- thinking like, yeah, it's when he's talking about oh, the yeah, avant-garde yeah, yeah. Okay. and how it's kind of tied to political action when it came about and all that kind of stuff. Sure, all that. But I, I, I like I'm waiting for something for like what did the avant-garde do? Like did it create like any type of sociopolitical, what, what you would call sociopolitical in air quote reforms? Like did that happen? I mean, has I, any single poem ever? Yeah, well, that's what I mean. I just you know you can tie that to okay. We, we could argue that the sentiment of the poem landed an impact on people. Maybe it changed somebody's minds who read it. Maybe something like that. But I just, to say that the poem did anything like that is just such a stretch. And I think, again, it's going into the unprovable realm here. It's just a nice sentiment to think about. It's just something nice to say. Like you said, it's just being nice, kind of. I don't know. I don't agree with it at all. I don't, I don't, I don't see any evidence to say that this art form, or really, I, I would argue movies... You could make that argument for more than poetry in terms of you could have like literally trace historical kind of changes in public sentiment if you wanted to even go open, more open than sociopolitical reform. Just public sentiment, like what, how people think of things, whatever yeah. it is. I so mean, you could. You know, my feelings on this is that like whenever you talk about like poetry as a form of resistance, I'm like, to whom? You know, like to other poets, are you resisting? Like, who is this readership that this is going to have such a profound impact on such a massive portion of society as to to demand sociopolitical change as a result of a poem? Like, I also feel like that's maybe a little bit 
self-aggrandizing, but, <laughs> but like not of, I don't think necessarily of learner of himself, right? But like of the poet who, you know, proposed that as their central project, in, you know, by way of poetry, this is what we intend to do. Um, To which I would say there are probably more direct avenues to what you are trying to do. Um, But whatever, you know, Uh, and I would also say, like, you know, I think I think Lerner does have humility here. I think that he knows that this is sort of like, you know, as much as many parts of this essay might be a mouthful, as much as we might disagree with it, there is humility here. There is something of an awareness here, right? I hope it goes without saying. He says that my summary here doesn't pretend to be comprehensive. Poems can fulfill any number of ambitions other than the ones I'm describing. And this is on page 76. They can actually be funny or lovely or offer solace or courage or inspiration to certain audiences at certain times. They can play a role in constituting a community and so on. The admitted weakness in the story I'm telling about poetry is that it doesn't have much to say about good poems in all their variety. It's much better at dealing with great or horrible instances of the art. Yeah. For me, it's... But I don't know that it deals with like either of those, actually. Right. I think it's trying to deal with ideas about the art more generally and you know with that comes the risk of saying something that applies broadly to just art generally which i think in some ways he's done i do think it's interesting and maybe it's just because of our particular level of exposure to poetry and this particular form of art that we see these defenses and denunciations come around again and again Um, So I don't know how much of that happens elsewhere, Well, although I assume it does. And I think he kind of, this is, and that's the point too, about halfway through this, he kind of glances over something. I understand why he glances over it, like kind of just brushes off of it or, but he doesn't do that. He tries to make it something else. Like it's, it's uncouth to say this, especially in academia but I think he's mistaking a lot of the hatred or what he's calling hatred of poetry, particularly by critics when he starts quoting critics and stuff. He's not mentioning that it isn't hatred of poetry, but it's this very human kind of bitterness and jealousy on the person criticizing, right? And he uses that example of the inauguration poem, I guess, with like Obama's inauguration. There's Packer, no. some poet or critic. I don't, I've never heard of it. He's like, quotes him about he wrote something about how he didn't like the poet that you know obama picked for his inauguration or well, whatever he, he didn't like that there would be an inaugural poem right. he didn't like the idea that there would be a poem written specifically for this occasion which like on the one hand i almost agree with because i'm like you know it's you're writing the one thing like is it gonna be good how much time do you really have like Whatever. It's for a much more general audience and we don't need it to be the poem. And I think maybe like asserting that that's some kind of crime, you know, some kind of art crime is maybe silly. Well, for me, it's more of that's like 
he's again you're not i understand why he doesn't say this because it is kind of like ooh, you don't say this in polite company i.e academia you don't say this but like everything i read that he quoted from that critic that was saying i guess what was the alexander was the poet that was chosen i this was before i was I mean, this was before i was old enough to even fucking know i liked poetry so i have no memory of any of this shit so it's like but when i read the quotes from that critic being like oh you know this isn't you know how do you get you know we shouldn't have an inaugural poet every time i read the quotes that learner put in this book i was just thinking i was like yeah what this guy's saying like packer or whoever learner's quoting is he's yeah. just pissed it wasn't him selected to be the inaugural poet. Like, that's what I kept getting out of it. Because he's not making an argument that makes sense to me. Like, oh, it doesn't capture enough. Oh, it's not a good poem. It's a bad practice. I was like, nah, dude. You just wish it was you selected. Okay, that's what you wish. So you get this bump, that bump in book sales. All right. I, we all know this. You're not supposed to say it. But, like, that's really what, he, what he's calling hatred is this kind of natural jealousy neuroticism that like comes when you're trying to do something that not everybody gets to do. It doesn't even matter if you're good or not, right? Not everybody yeah. gets to do it. This is, uh, uh, you know, and I, I just, I was like, you know, I, I appreciate his point that he's making with that, but I think he makes the wrong point. He calls that, that like Packer wants the poet to be a poetic ideal. I was like, nah, you're over intellectualizing this. This guy's just bitter as fuck that he wasn't selected to be the inaugural poet like for he this. he didn't get the... Yeah, the for this historical, the this is the most like the most historic inauguration we've had in our, like <laughs> in America. Like, he's just pissed he wasn't selected to do it, right? Like, I think that explains it more than this. Oh, he's complaining about a lofty ideal that isn't met. It's a much simpler explanation, at least in my opinion. But yeah, uh, yeah. And for reference, this is um, let's see who. What's the first name? Um. So this was so the the critic is George Packer. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter, dude. It's just yeah, Packer wrote some bitter fucking thing because he wasn't selected, and we're pretending. Elizabeth Alexander. Yeah. We're pretending. Elizabeth Alexander was the poet. Yeah, we're pretending that he had some legit criticism or something. It's like, nah, dude. Yeah. Well. He says, for many decades, American poetry has been a private activity written by few people and read by few people, lacking the language, rhythm, emotion, and thought that could move large numbers of people in large public settings, which just sounds like a poetry reading. And I'm like, what? Like, okay, tell us about what it used to be like then. Go for it. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. What do you, right. You know... What are we asking of the poetry reading here? Like, what are we, you know, I, like, I don't know. I think it's, you're right. I think my initial response to that quote was actually like, yeah, <laughs> I agree. But then <laughs> I, <laughs> I was also like, but not really, actually. Yeah. Like, yeah, there, you know, you're going to the inauguration or you're watching the inauguration, you probably care enough to watch the inaugural poet. Right? Yeah. Like, I don't know. I just don't think that actually matters that much. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, whatever. But the, yeah, he really starts to sum up around page 76. Where, you know, he, he talks about sort of the weakness of his story that he's telling about, you know, capital P poetry. Um, and it's kind of pleading a little bit. He says, but the story is illuminating because, you know, 
whatever he says, which I always think is kind of funny when someone okay. accounts for their own story is illuminating. Yeah. And it's like, you have now told me that the epiphany of the story was specifically for you, which is fine. Like, you know, that's fine. Um, yeah, and that's right at, yeah. right before that. I mean, that's when he goes into the kind of he just starts making claim after claim about Whitman. Yeah, so he makes a lot of lofty claims in here that and he keeps on saying perfect contempt, which at some point he describes, but I just don't really agree with his description of yeah. what you know he calls perfect contempt. Maybe I should. And this again comes from Moore's poem that he cites at the very beginning, but. Um, he talks about Alan Grossman dying. He died in 2014. He died that summer. That's sort of just like a momentary intermission right before he, you know, just sort of right before he closes in the last 10 pages and talks about sort of the childlike nature of playing with language and all of this other stuff and yeah i was kind of worn out by the time i got here gotta admit dude that whitman stuff um, threw me for a loop i had to stop when i was reading this and just put it down because i was like what are you saying dude like i then get doesn't he i get the sentiment i get it was at a time where there was turmoil uncertainty everybody freaked out like 2015 2016 but like he's stretching I mean, he, again, I think that's why people like the book. This is what yeah. people took from it, was that he's comparing these kind of... It's so flexible. Right. Like, he's making just wild claims. Like, at one point he says, you know, Whitman democratizes pronouns and then says he likes I and you well, universal. And I was just thinking to myself, like, dude, so the I and you were not universal until Whitman? Like, like I, I just, and again, there's no evidence, doesn't say why this is. It's just a lofty claim that well, kind of goes about, along I with the that. sentiments everybody that. was feeling. He talks about, sure, he talks about the sort of democratic ideal of Whitman and being the everyman and wanted to, wanting to stand in for the everyman, right? Yeah. Whether or not he actually succeeded at that, I think is a different argument to be making. But then we get this story at the very, very end. I think maybe one of your favorites from this essay about when Lerner attended a quote, aggressively mediocre opera. <laughs> um, his opera. And his boredom, he was bored. And he says it deepened into something like a trance. I happened to see from our distant seats a single firefly slowly flashing around the orchestra, then floating onto the stage, then drifting back beyond the proscenium. Is that the right way to say that? I don't fucking know. But yeah, I happened to see from our distant seats a single firefly slowly flashing around the orchestra. And it goes on and... He says that it's light appearing here in New Mexico and then three leagues from Seville. Like, you know, like all this stuff he just talks about. Um, what is this firefly story about? Again, I mean, it's, it's the same thing. It's just abstracting further what he was already here saying. Here in clock time and there in the continuous present tense of art. Right. Like if we were going to talk about the present tense of art, I feel like we had to talk about that sooner maybe. 
but yeah, sure. Well, I think um, that's where it really falls off the rails when he starts trying to make these connections between. That's where. Well, I mean, I, before then, I think I wrote in my notes just, here. Yeah, yeah, it really falls off the rails halfway. Just yeah, this essay falls off the rails when he kind of like the intent to prove hatred is so lost in his defense of all this, like kind of what I would call his contemporaries for the most part, that he kind of dances around the point he's trying to make. And I think it just further obscures it, right? Like uh, he's yeah, well, not really making a case for why people hate poetry so much as he's making a case for why he believes no, it to be. No, he never says why people hate poetry. I don't think it's ever actually said. Um, any of the, you know, multiple reasons I think that exist or are common for disliking at least poetry, which I think is probably a more common attitude than outright hatred. If he's talking about hatred, maybe like, is he actually talking about the critics? Is that who hates poetry? The people who denounce it, not just general readers, because I also don't think that's what Moore's poem is about, which is also one of the big, you know, problems I took with the setup of this essay, is that I wasn't convinced by his reading of Marianne Moore. Right. And again, like, I think he's smart. Like, I do. Um, At the end of this book, I don't think he's, he's so right. smart. Yeah. <laughs> by the time I got he to the He says at the end, all I ask... I ask the haters, and I too am one. Where is this? Is that they strive to perfect their hate, their contempt, even consider bringing it to bear on poems where it will be deepened, not dispelled, and where by creating a place for possibility and present absences like unheard melodies, it might come to resemble love. So I think like what he's talking about here is familiarity <laughs> in some sense, right? That to perfect your hatred for something is to actually understand it and understand why you actually hate it. And then in the process of doing so, you recognize what it is that, or maybe it's just like re actually recognizing what it is about other poems that you do love that are absent from this poem. <laughs> um, but Love is a big word to throw in there by the end, right? Yeah, well, um, it's good. It's because if you he use kind these, of alludes, I think he alludes to this idea up front, but I don't think it actually gets said at all or you know fleshed out in any way. Um, it gets said right here. What page? This is the very last page, uh, you're 86. Already, you're already on the last page, yeah. Yeah, that I the paragraph I read was the last paragraph. Oh, okay. Do you want to touch on the nostalgia he mentions? So I think that's where oh, he man, makes this. What? Oh man, go for it. Well, I just think that's where he makes a good point. Where I think he makes this point, where he's making a point that I think does like delegitimizes his entire argument right where he's like nostalgists want this ideal he's describing an ideal like he's arguing for this ideal that doesn't exist right and he's not being very rigorous about it 
and I mean, I agree with the claim that, yeah, nostalgists are looking for something that they wrongly assume existed years ago. I agree with that. I think that's correct, right? When we feel nostalgia, we're just kind of projecting something onto it. But I just, yeah, he's making, yeah. he, he undermined his own claim because he's projecting an ideal here, especially when he starts talking about, you know, this, he gets into these weird capitalism metaphors and all this kind of, and I get, these are buzzwords. These are trendy. These are things that were on trend at the time, yeah. still on trend. This is all very, very sexy, yeah. but it was like all so sexy. Failure was really sexy in right. this moment. Right. Uh, like just failing as a good thing was re a really hot thing that was going around that's what i mean and like oh. and using that example i think you know he's this is why i say oh well, maybe he's not so smart because by using this framework of nostalgia which i agree with the framework he's putting forth he's falling victim to what he accuses them of like yeah well i also think it's like just one of the things that you can fall victim to if you're trying to wrap in so many abstract ideas into one thing without a clear and obvious goal. I think that maybe if his goal was just to understand why we frequently uh, feel the need to defend or denounce poetry, I think, again, like maybe these ideas would have wrapped in more naturally. But it it just felt maybe like it drifted focus here and there and like couldn't stay in. It drifts focus from the very beginning. Why does it drift focus? I would argue because it's not very well thought out. I mean, I don't think he put much rigor into this. I think this, that's why I would call this a personal yeah. reflective essay because that's what he's doing. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I don't. Yeah. I mean, I think this is like a personal essay that maybe would appear in like his personal collection of craft essays. Yeah, I think it could have been broken. It would have made more sense if it was broken into multiple essays, too. But 100%. Yeah, because he 100%. jumps around so much. Uh, one thing I wanted to draw attention to, and this gets back to the, you know, who are these things for? Who is poetry for? All this kind of stuff. He says, um, uh, he tells this story. Uh, what is this? This is page 77. Uh, and, you know, he says, you know, that I'm not pretending to have my summary here be comprehensive. You know, poems can fulfill any number of ambitions other than the ones I'm describing. Again, removing his own authority in this sense. So that's fine. But I guess that's what people want to see. But he just says. Yeah, no. but it's humility after making so many fucking massive claims. Right, so, like, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Of course I think you have to backtrack those. Yeah. Like this is, of yeah, course you have okay. to backtrack because they crumble under like a shred of scrutiny kind of thing. But he says, the story is illuminating because it helps account for the persistent, if mutable, feeling that our moments, poems, are always already failing us. And my question here is just, who is the us? Who are these poems failing? Is it America? Yeah. Humanity? We ben? Don't, ben Lerner? We don't get that answer, do we? No. Um, Again, because it's an abstraction. It's this, it's this broad abstraction that you can project anything on. So he takes it towards the like, kind of... It can only be those of us who read poems, I assume. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you could say that. But I, I just want to be like, fail. so somebody writes a bad poem or a poem that he would say fails us, right? Who is us? Fails. What has it done? Like, yeah. like, I write bad poems every day. Like, nobody fails. Like, I mean, it doesn't affect anybody, right? Like, who is... Well, by his own understanding... It can only be readers of poetry who are largely other poets, right? Like he says that so many times. 
in different words. But I think he's going broader than that. I think he means it broader than that, like failing us. Failing society, failing that, humanity. And I think it's it's kind of reveals because I mean they have some great purpose. We went over this a little bit. I think it's kind of you can kind of see Lerner's insecurities in the fact that he's ivory tower he's a poster boy of the ivory tower i mean this guy's got a million dollars worth of fellowships in his back pocket uh i mean i don't i mean of course he is one of the most celebrated contemporary writers in existence there's like a deep insecurity where well, he's talking is he about not more celebrated as a fiction writer well he I is mean, yeah he is yeah i, I said well, he, i mean like i knew him also first as a as a fiction author yeah. before I knew him as a poet. Well, me too. Cause his fiction made some waves. His poetry never made any waves. So, well, we also like, don't, but I, I don't think I was like in any serious way interested or like exposed maybe to the world of poetry when he was first putting books out. Yeah. And I didn't encounter, those until his novels were introduced to me yeah i just again I, I, it's this it's this pretending that poems are doing something other than just being like an art like i get i know why i understand the impulse to romanticize art and say that it's doing things that it couldn't possibly even in the like the wildest <laughs> realms be doing but like when it says he's it's failing us i'm just like really like Again, yeah, well, it's... I don't even feel like he's established any way in which it's supposed to actually. I mean, the only way that he's really established it serves us is what? That it m makes us present to one another. <laughs> it literally, yeah. like, it, it gives the appearance of persons to one another. Right. It's hard to unpack, and I think maybe it's you know, a little bit muddled. And I think that maybe by the end, there are some moments that are reaching that maybe feel like a nice bow to put on it, but don't quite make sense. So yeah, I think that as, like the reason why maybe this is frustrating is because it is like more of a personal reflective essay than it is one of like a, a personal, I mean, I guess it's his personal theory or his personal application of a couple of theories. <clears throat> but yeah it, it does make a lot of claims that it doesn't back up and then says hold up i know i didn't back this stuff up but uh but let me just me, assert yeah. really quickly that <laughs> the poetry is failing us and i think his example of the hypermart and that like where he's talking about like uh, again this kind of capitalism metaphor i think it's much weaker than he thinks it is like you know, I would be interested in the argument that about how poetry is failing us because right. I don't see him like, you know, right. and his whole thing is that like, you can't have a love of poetry without the hatred of it. Well, right? yeah. Or and I think can't have you, you know, you can have a perfect contempt for it and also find that you have love for it and that these qualities are in his words, inextricable from one another uh yeah and i'm kind of disappointed too because ben Lerner's at a place in his career like to do this type of argument to do this in a way that i think we're holding him to that we would like to see or are interested in or originally thought this was going to go 
in that direction. To do that, you got to burn some bridges. If you're going to do this honestly, you're going to lose some friends kind of thing because you're going to have to talk about kind of like, I don't know, you're going to have to bash some people's dreams and lofty ideals, whatever you want to call it, right? And I just, because Lerner's in a position where he could do that well, and get away with it. Well, you just might say, have to say things that like people don't agree with. Well, that but too, also, yeah. You have to make a judgment. And yeah, what yeah. capacity <laughs> is, like, yeah, to say that poetry is in some way failing us, I think you have to, you know, unless, he, I mean, he's been saying that this whole time, though, that all poems fail. Right? Which you and I have said we kind of all fundamentally disagree fail. with, but yeah. We do. So is this just like a playful poetry is failing us? Right. I Like, is this playful? Um, I, I don't think it's playful at all, dude. I mean, at this point, I have to believe what he's saying, right? Like, I mean, is this just a joke? Like, why would he write this if it was just playful? But I mean, that's the thing too, right? Like, there's no seriousness. It's like you could pretend to be serious about poetry and people just praise you anyway. But I just mean, my point about that was like, he's in a position. Like, there are no more strategic fellowships for him to even get awarded at this point. Like, he's got them all. He's got the professorship, the full professorship at a college with tenure and all that entails. He could have done something like what we're saying. He could have made that argument with the judgments and people would get mad at him, et cetera, et cetera. But again, he's Ben Lerner, so what's they going to do, right? And he just didn't. And again, I think because he just doesn't actually have much to say about it, maybe, but... Uh, but I, I, this idea of the, 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 the capitalism metaphor with this hypermart opened in Topeka and like wandering through uh, the store and being amazed at all these colorful products and brands and marketing and, you know, end of aisle displays, especially, you know, kind of when you're a kid, you're really kind of, it's remarkable to go through this brightly lit store with all these bright brands and colors staring at you. And he's like, you know, do you remember that sense or have it now of being a tentative node in the limitless networks of goods and flows? Because that's also poetry. And I get what he's saying. Like I said, I just think it's a weaker metaphor than he thinks it's doing here. Like it's not doing, I don't know. I just, I just can't stand this kind of, like, he, like the abstract exchange. It's like, dude, like this... It doesn't work because if you're talking about abstract exchange, like there is no abstract exchange unless you get to like monetary policy or whatever thing like that, then you get much more abstract in exchanges. But like you're literally, I don't know. It's just comparing like buying a branded cereal box for whatever and like standing in the aisle and looking at it to figure it out, comparing that to poetry and like the, like it's limitless goods and flows. I'm just like, yeah, I understand what you're saying is like this ether, this thing that weaves in between us that's all, you know, unsaid. I'm just like, man, like you're not making it any more concrete by comparing it to something that I would say is not applicable. <laughs> like it's just like that is a very different thing than what we're, what are you trying to talk about? But that's just my, I mean, I just took a, you know, I was a little... Yeah. Pissed about that. Um, it's like, dude, like you're just playing to the crowd now. Like you're just trying to get another fellowship that you've already gotten, I guess, at this point. But I don't know. But you mentioned that love. That last bit. Yeah. I did want to talk about that. 
There is no need to go on multiplying examples of an impulse that can produce no adequate examples of a capacity that can't be objectified without falsification. I've written in its defense and in defense of our denunciation of it, because that is the dialectic of a vocation no less essential for being impossible. Sounds like a lot of nonsense. All right. Uh, All I ask the haters, and I too am one, is that they strive to perfect their contempt even consider bringing it to bear on poems where it will be deepened, not dispelled, and where, by creating a place for possibility and present absences, like unheard melodies, it might come to resemble love. My first, my note just here written in the page is just, what? Like, what did I just read in that word salad? Yeah, well, I mean, we also go back to, this goes a little bit back to Grossman for me, and like, I think it's, um, also maybe gesturing toward Moore's use of the genuine, but, um, for Grossman, he does talk about, um, I don't remember what he says exactly. And I'm going to use the wrong word and I know it, and I don't have the book in front of me, so I'm not going to like pull up the quote, but, um, talks about, like, I don't know if it's the subject of the poem or the object of the poem or the something of the poem is always the beloved, right? There's this idea of the beloved in the poem. Or that's what the poem is for or it, about. Right. Right. So I think maybe it's trying to gesture at that. I think also very plainly, like, you know, we've said for a very long time that hate and love are not that distant from one another right Uh, Um, but like it's just it's it's like a it feels maybe like a lazy like what i you know said before is like it feels like it's just throwing this thing in there right right because it feels like a nice tying up of these multiple ideas into one thing it feels like it can sort of pull everything together. But we haven't really talked about love. Um, I think My, it's just another way of talking about the way all poems, all actual poems, even though we must necessarily have contempt for them because they fail. And this is, you know, his thesis, I guess. Um, we still find in them a love that we might have for them because we get this image of what it its ambition is but you know i don't that's how i read it i don't know if i agree with it my whole thing is uh, uh, the love and hate thing that he uses i just think is just a bad framing mostly because it's like this kind of like you know internet social media framing of things oh, i have a love hate relationship with my whatever you know whatever it fucking is where a love-hate relationship is very normal and human whatever that's how we but it's just i don't know it's become like a meme and i just i can't stand this yeah uh, devolving of kind of like slogans and phrases and yeah gifts from fucking the internet that has just invaded everything like you just can't get away from it uh people just speak in meme it's kind of remarkable to me and not that learner's doing that here but i think he is kind of 
bordering on that. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, just that framing. I All I ask the haters. Yeah. Come on, dude. The haters. <laughs> the haters. Who yeah. are the haters? Haters gonna hate. Like, that's, even, that's not even clear. Aren't the same hater? Aren't the haters the same people in your definition that are the... I don't know. I'm like, there are just a lot of things that are not nailed down <laughs> here. With that? And I think that go for it, huh? What? Uh, no, yeah, it. I just like think that's one of those things that's not nailed down. Like again, we have the dislike of poetry, the perfect contempt for poetry, the hatred of poetry. And I guess these are all like I don't know if these are all the same thing. We have the genuine and the virtual and the actual and a couple of those might be the same thing, but maybe not. And one of them always fails um, and it fails only like there are all of these terms that like it's just a lot. It's a lot to follow for so few pages. Um, and I think not always in every place adequately defined some of them are perfectly fine like even though i don't agree with them i think if you needed to follow his understanding of what the virtual and the actual are i think you could easily do that um i don't think the same is true for what we're talking about when we talk about hatred i think that's just sort of like a sexy you know i think it's sexier to say that than dislike or contempt right and, you know, it does make a sexier title. And I think there's something to be said for that. Of course. But overall, yeah, I just, I think that we'll, he'll always have the defense of, you know, it's just sort of like a personal essay that doesn't actually mean to present a real theory. But I kind of think that it does. I don't know. Uh, I, I, don't, I hated it. <laughs> I hated this book. Well, so did um, so did Mark Halliday. Yeah. Um, we who said Halliday's piece? Yeah, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this. He For, he wrote. It's a short Ple- piece. Pleiades. Um. Yeah. He packs a lot in, and he goes through a lot, though. And uh, my favorite part yeah. of. Uh, it was called Learner and His Firefly. And I, I laughed at that. Yeah, I laughed. I was like, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> the firefly moment. Um, firefly. Yeah, and he says a lot. Um, he outright claims that he got um, Grossman's claims about poetry wrong. Where, well, first... Especially where he says poetry isn't hard, it's impossible, which right. is, he just says, yeah, this is wrong. Uh, Grossman and Halliday says, that's wrong. Grossman always wanted to show that poetry is hard, but his life was devoted to its possibility and to its value. Well, um, the first Aspiration thing... to the ideal, perfect, quote, virtual poem um, becomes lethal when carried too far. What I would say, and the first thing he points out is something we pointed out too, where Holiday makes a good point about the hatred. When he's saying, 
what he says it there's the sense there's the sensationalism of insisting on the flagrant word hatred when really what Lerner has in mind is addressed more fairly by such words as frustration disappointment radical skepticism or dislike <laughs> like in the actual Moore poem right dislike yeah and um, I think that's a fair well, point. Although when you read that essay, it's a fun essay because it is very bitchy and kind of. It's pretty mean. It's, yeah. it's very bitchy and it's like a fun read. And <laughs> I am inclined to agree with him most of the way through. And I'm not a huge Halliday fan. Like I'm not, it's just like not what interests me very much right now, which is, you know, whatever, like you are perfectly like if you like Mark Halliday, go for it. Like, you know, no judgment. Uh, but and he takes he does him to talk task. about yeah. thesis. Um, he takes him to task, says, like you said, his with thesis consists of two. Yeah, well, and that his thesis consists of two claims: that poetry has a special power to induce in readers a hunger for an ideal poem, a poem that will marv- marvelously and totally uplift us, inspire us, enlighten us. <laughs> comfort us two actual poems always disappoint us by inevitably <coughs> falling short of such an ideal and our disappointment darkens into hatred learner implies without ever thinking it through that poetry has this double effect on us while other arts don't well that's what i mean and like that's what i said you ca- I, I i i agree i don't think learner thought this through I think it was just like, whatever, you know, and I think the part that makes Halliday's kind of rebuttal to this bitchy is that there is a little bit of bitterness. There's a little bit of that resentment in it. Like, um, he takes some shot at the MacArthur grants, right? I mean, his first, he says, my revulsion against this tiny book is so overdetermined. Let me count the ways. Little misreference Um, there. Yeah. But yeah, yeah and he says. But and I think so. He, out, it's outright bitch from the jump, like, and there's no attempt to hide that whatsoever. And because you know Mark Halliday is like, you know, he's poetry famous, right? Um, like he's sort of safe, right? Yeah, and I think a telling quote that I wrote down here from that Halliday piece is when he, you were just about there, where he was saying, "Lerner believes that." Ultimately, beyond the frustrations he calls hatred, he loves something he calls poetry, but this something turns out to be a bliss, a blissy, mind-blown, oceanic feeling separate from and happily oblivious of individual poems. And then he goes, yeah, like, I mean, and it's true. Like, it is this kind of, like, very hippie, like, whoa, man, like, that firefly blew my mind. It's beautiful. That firefly... It's beautiful, bro. <laughs> Expand consciousness. Um, yeah. Like, that's just what I'm... And, like, it yeah. is. Like, you feel that. Like, what he calls poetry. <laughs> he loves something he calls poetry. <laughs> but that something turns out to be a blissy, mind-blown, oceanic feeling separate from and happily oblivious of individual poems. And that's just like, yeah, you're calling it poetry, but I mean, that's the same thing. Like you can call something poetry. I see this in reviews all the time, movie reviews, book reviews. It's it's like poetry. Yeah. Poetry dripping from the screen. It's a canvas. Again, using all these other art forms to describe this one art form. And yeah, I mean, it's the same type of thing. I think it's naive. It's not, it's a naive childish understanding of this stuff. And I think Holiday points that out. Yeah. 
Yeah, and he talks about audience, too. Um, he says, any serious discussion of the essential demands poetry makes upon readers and the essential effects it has upon readers would have to address as its first audience its most important because most engaged and informed audience, the population of people who care intensely about poems. So this is kind of like a fucking weird sentence that I read 800 times and did not like. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it doesn't address his fucking audience. Learner's mini book pretends to address that population, but I suspect he knows, and I'm sure the editor at FSG knows that, the actual target audience for the hatred of poetry is mostly people who are somehow pissed off or embarrassed by the fact that they don't really care about poetry. Well, I don't know if that is, is he saying here? Well, I think it's the same thing. It's like, we're, it's the, it's, it's the, who is the us question. And I think Halliday is raising yeah. that same. I mean, well, yeah, but then he's saying who then is the writer who implicitly targets readers who don't deeply care about poetry with his essay about hostility toward poetry. <laughs> the suspicion arises that the writer himself doesn't deeply care about poetry. A person who does not know what it is to love a poem is not a person who can write interestingly about the hatred of poetry. <laughs> um, so, like, I actually, I don't agree with this. I think that, like, you know, I think that Lerner maybe fails to acknowledge who his audience actually is going to be here. Well, he has I don't no think idea, that anybody. I think. Yeah. Um, Again, it's like it's this made up. Halliday's it... point. I think maybe maybe there is that audience of people who are somehow pissed off or embarrassed by the fact that they don't really care about poetry. But I like I think more broadly, it's going to if by anybody be read by people who are already familiar with Ben Lerner as a poet. And like you said, the title, I mean, a, a title like that is going to sell copies no matter what. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and it came out relatively recently, but yeah, uh, I tend to, agree. I think holiday kind of what I think his essay offers. So listeners, if you want to read this Ben Lerner's little book here, it doesn't take long to read. Uh, and then, like, if you want to read Holidays, I would recommend everybody read Holidays after reading Learners. Uh, I think Holiday vocalizes a lot of this kind of, like, that what Learner is pointing out isn't necessarily, like, profound or, like, unknown. It's, like, and the quote, I and this is, again, he's a little bitchy about it here. Internet snark, again, get me on this internet. Everybody loves to just, everybody just speaks in meme now, internet snark meme. But he doesn't quite go to that level with um, Holiday, doesn't at least. But he says, uh, what Lerner seems mostly to want from a poem is the pleasure in finding, for the millionth time, that it falls short of the LSD wow a firefly totalizing magic of what he calls virtual poetry. And virtual poetry is in air quotes. Yeah, he's pointing out this kind of like, yeah, dude, like you're not pointing out anything that hasn't been known for the last couple hundred years. Like it, it just, it's, it's, it's this and I see this all the time is like easy arguments, <laughs> like easy, low hanging fruit. And now we're just repeating the low hanging fruit arguments by a new face. Ben Lerner has it now. And we're just doing the easy, low level, low hanging fruit arguments over again. Wow. LSD. Wow. A firefly. <laughs> LSD. Wow. A firefly totalizing magic of what he calls virtual poetry. Yeah. That's what I mean. He's talking about something that doesn't offer us any insight into the art. Like, okay, 
in moments of inspiration, moments of beauty, I get that poetry is trying to capture those things. But, like, this is something that's well known. Like, this isn't, like, some, like, new breakthrough argument. Not that everything has to be that, but, yeah. It is. This is why I get the sense that yeah. it's childish, and it's not very well thought out. I think, you know, maybe it was just a money grab. And I think part of the bitterness you see in Holiday's Holiday takes a few shots at the publishing industry. Again, I mean, Lerner has more money, more publishing, more publications, more prestige, recognition, etc. than most current contemporary writers. He's definitely in that top percentage, right? That top 1%. So I think there might be a little bit of that coming from Lerner is like, this guy? This guy's getting all this recognition? You mean Halliday? Yeah, yeah, Halliday when he's like, yeah. this guy? This guy's getting all this record? Like... Well, yeah, because he's one who has it, but also right. I think has gotten some heat in recent years. But Who, Halliday or Lerner? Um, Halliday, uh, at least by his students from what I've heard. Oh, of course, but... dude, yeah. Well, again, it's always these people well, that know nothing. he teaches at yeah. Ohio with his wife, I think. Oh, yeah, um, in Athens, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's old as shit now, though. Isn't he retired or about to retire? Yeah. But yeah, and 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 I think he really solidifies this when he's when uh, Holiday talks when he's talking about Lerner's ideal perfection that he claims we're looking for, which of course we are kind of looking for. Is like he just says, "No, you're comparing the dis, uh, the disappointing phenomenon to uh, to many better desserts." Like he's like he uses the thing as like food. Where he's like, "Okay, if somebody says one dessert is better than another, uh, a meal is better than another, right?" He's like. You know, you're not talking about this ideal perfection that doesn't exist, like this nostalgia in your head. He's like, no, you're comparing it to something very real, right? So you're comparing the dis the disappointing phenomenon to many better desserts or romantic partners or novels you've encountered in actual kitchens, yeah. beds, chairs, like in actual, like it's real, like it's there. It isn't an abstraction or some ideal thing that doesn't exist. We can point to it and say, that's a better chair than this chair over here. That's a better dessert than this dessert over here. Like we can make that claim. That's why I think this is so confused. And I, I mean, I, I hate to use this word, but I mean, we said a little bit, it's elementary. Like this is elementary kind of yeah. thinking about the art. And it is kind of frustrating that somebody's pretending that this is more than just this kind of like elementary, like you're not saying anything, dude. Like you're not making a contribution here. Well, yeah. Uh, and Halliday says his gaga celebration of liquefied perception is something most of us had recognized as boring by the time we graduated from college that um, floating off into a reverie about a firefly or rapidly drinking four beers can feel awesome. But later the experience turns out to have been vague, foggy, unconducive to interesting thoughts. Right. It's, it just bothers me that the whole thing hinges on this imaginary ideal perfection, right? Like again, this, and what I think, I, as I said, Holiday is a little jealous and bitter. I think it comes off a little bitter and jealous when he starts making Ooh, quips. Just even just bitchy. Yeah, well, I, I mean, specifically when he starts making kind of insulting quips about MacArthur fellowships or, you know, these are very coveted fellowships. Everybody wants one, right? I understand that. Yeah. I understand that, you know, everybody wants it. Everybody who's an artist thinks they deserve mm -hmm. it, right? And not everybody gets it, right? <laughs> Only a couple people a year get it, right? So it's not like, you know, so I don't know. I, you could just take that out. Like he just, I think he made the quip of like, you know, basically, oh, the MacArthur disease. Like when you get a MacArthur, you start saying stupid things. Uh, and that's what I mean. It's just I like will a say, little. I think he was also trying. He was also trying to be entertaining, which yeah, like he yeah. succeeded at. Yeah, and it does make me. It did make me laugh when I read that. But yeah, and I think he yeah. critiques. I think my one quip with the holiday article. I think he critiques 
this this essay accurately but i think he doesn't hold and again it's a small it's a shorter it's a much shorter essay it was published in a lit journal that nobody reads because nobody reads lit journals and uh so probably most people didn't read this thing although it is on the internet if you use the you know google to find it listeners so he he does critique accurately but he doesn't hold learner to account for like these kind of claims that he makes which bothered me as i mentioned in like the last three hours we've been doing this uh bothered me specifically his claim of virtual poetry why is nobody taking this down like this is an asinine idea like i just i wish holiday would gotten a little bit more into how ridiculous well, it's just like such a basic it's just like it's just plato <laughs> it's just it's just the thing uh, the perfect thing versus the real world representation of the thing that and... the idea comes before the thing itself and i guess the uh and like fine but don't it's not like all poems are not failures because of that or else we wouldn't read them that and i think i guess he's using grossman's language right so that's grossman's idea of virtual but then holiday says he's misunderstanding what grossman is saying with that stuff which i can agree with because i would what i've read of grossman he's much more coherent and careful than i think learners being in this essay but yeah i would have well, liked he's much to see... much more complicated well which is i would say cause... he's much much more you know people would call it nuanced i you know can't pretend to understand it that you know intimately as maybe Halliday might um but yeah I think that maybe there's like a central idea there that's that learner maybe had right but didn't take it to the right conclusion yeah but I I mean I I, I guess I'd have to read Grossman to be like yeah I really take take conflict I'm really just I don't like this idea of virtual poetry versus uh, yeah, like actual versus ver I just really hate this framing. I think it's, it's not useful. It's just so romantic and so but, yeah, it's just not useful. I think but I think your point is is correct, right? Like your point is learner is getting at something. Like he's trying to get at something. I know we were ba I was I was bashing this the entire time we've been talking about it, but he is trying to get at something real that exists. He's just going about it in like this simplified and way right and then when you simplify it you and start sometimes talking it's like two different things that he's right. talking about under one definition and it feels muddled like you know and something this complicated there isn't some one thing that's called the capital h hatred of poetry like you know it, i feel like you have to give more language to that well, um, I, I mean, and i it... don't feel like he White does, but I do think that this idea of the constant back and forth between a defense for poetry and a denunciation of it, uh, like, uh, you know, as a, the, the art form is now failing and it's doomed, I think um, there's well, something interesting there in terms of like a historical pattern of how we do this or the reasons for which we do this, but. Well, I think he's getting at something yeah. real, like the conflict that occurs in somebody's head to create, right? I think he's talking about that, but I think he's, again... Oh, yeah. It's it's difficult. One, that's a difficult thing to articulate, period. 
you know, it's a complicated thing because it involves very much, you know, we start going out of the realm of art here and we start getting into human psychology. We start getting into human behavior, reaction, feelings, all these, you know, chemical reactions in our brain. We could go that route. We could. He, I mean, I know I'm not expecting him to go that route, you know, whatever. This is a book about poetry theory, but it's like, uh, he's, he, he's, he's just not taught. He's simplifying that to the point where it's incoherent now. This is like, because it can't be simplified to that point. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Well, or, or it's like, it's too, yes, but it's also, it's maybe over simple, like it's overly simplified and it's also, uh, overly it's, mysticized. What's coming is it's misdiagnosed. It's misdiagnosed as hatred. Again, it's like misdiagnosed as this fucking internet meme where it's love, hate, love, hate relationship. You're a hater, bro. Like it's this fucking internet meme language. And he's using that. Like it's misdiagnosed. Like that's not what it is, which I think holiday correctly points out. It's much more difficult than that. Like it's much more complicated than that. And was when as soon as you simplify it, and I think this is why he kind of weaves in and out of all these kind of lofty ideas. He kind of goes into the 2016 like political fervor that was going on, and then he kind of weaves back into like these kind of you know Plato. And I'm just like, dude, like you're misdiagnosed. Like you're like it's this. It's it, I don't know. I mean, you're talking about something that I, I don't know. I just can't stand this idea of calling it virtual. Like 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 you're calling thought processes virtual poems like that should disqualify everything you say after this i haven't read grossman's stuff on yeah, it i'd well, be interested to like read it, it to see what grossman actually well, means his stuff by on it, it is but... just an essay about hard heart crane okay yeah i i think that we sort of cross through too many ideas that don't really get either distinguished from one another adequately or defined adequately or like, well, you know, it's just, it becomes kind of like hard to follow other than this thread of all poems fail because they are not the idea of the poem. They're not this like perfect idea that we have of the poem, which like on some level you know, we could say is a true experience for a poet, but I'm sure that you also feel at some point like you write something really sexy sometimes and are surprised at how good it is, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I just, I think there's like so much musing in a really romantic way about why poems fail without having to do the thing where you point to a particular poem and say why it's not good enough. Well, like you just now have, I mean, which he does at one point, but like, it's just, there's this blanket statement that you can apply and say that all poems fail. And somehow I guess this is, yeah, I don't know. Well, because the, he's... like the hatred thing, I get really hung up on because right. I'm not ever sure which kind of hatred we're talking about or whose hatred we're talking about. Is it the hatred of poetry by poets, by the people who decide to denounce poetry that is not, you know, that doesn't necessarily exclude poets? Like there are many in that category, I'm sure. Um, is it the hatred of poetry by people who have no interest in poetry, in which case it's more indifference? Right. Uh, 
you know, I think audience is important here. And I think, yeah, I don't know who this is for, really. Well, I think because he misdiagnoses it. So because he's talking about something that's like, he, he, he ends up making an argument that says you just shouldn't make judgments. Because he's, again, because he's confused and misdiagnosing what he's or actually talking about. Or that it's somehow about. like impossible. Not right. that, well, it's not that you shouldn't make judgments. It's that by reading bad poems, you're still experienced. You're having an experience of what the ideal poetry is. Well, the reason I say this is because he, his, like, his only argument for like why people hate it is that they're comparing it to some, what he calls a poetic ideal or ideal poetry in their heads, right? He's saying that it doesn't exist. I think Holiday rightfully takes that down and says, no, here's a couple examples of ideal poetry that exist yeah. in the world. I just, so making that I argument. I just think if Lerner, I think if he isolated like each one of these claims and wrote just that essay, it would be really, it, like he could write something compelling if it was, uh, you know. Well, and, and, and I mean, oh, I'll mention. Just I'll mention this is completely devoid of craft, right? Like, there's no talk of craft in this book. Like, there's no talk of. Well, he talks about it a little bit when he, he talks about that one super bad poem about the Tay Bridge. Yeah. The Tay Bridge disaster, or whatever. Um, but that's what I but mean. Yeah, I just. I think if he isolated this to talk about different pieces of this, I f it just feels like too many arguments that, that could be made that he is trying to force together, that he is trying to square with one another. And I don't know that you can, but I do think that you could maybe write each of these as individual arguments without having to tie, try to tie them up so neatly. And actually, like, honestly explore each of these claims as an individual essay. Maybe not an 86-page essay, well, but... Well, that's what I mean, know. is he's making these kind of lofty claims that he doesn't go into because he has... Because he's misdiagnosed what he's actually talking about. And then goes... He has to keep doubling down and going into these kind of lofty, again, very abstract, what he calls ideals. So what ideals. is he actually talking about? Because I feel like, I feel like what he's actually trying... Uh, I feel like the one concrete thing that he's coming back to is, you know, why do we, you know, oscillate between defending poetry and telling everybody that it's dead? Um, well, that's my, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, if I was pressed, if somebody put a gun to my head and said, what's this book about? I would be like, oh, judgment is bad. I don't know. I really have no idea what he's saying. Like, I really, that's what kind of confuses me and irritates me about this. But I think Holiday was feeling that too. It's because this book is held up as like, as if it's making, I mean, not that it's held up so much, but it's, it's held up to like, as if it's making some kind of really important point about the art and how people feel about it. And I, like I said, I think it's really just a lot of nothing. It's a lot of like, mm, I don't know, which is why he keeps going back to these abstract things because he has nothing to say. So he just keeps pulling. I and mean, again, when you're going this abstract, you can pull anything into it, right? Well, like it can... feels it feels like a lyric. In a lot of ways, it feels like a lyrical essay that wants to be like a, you know, craft essay or a theory essay. But yeah, and I... it ends up being neither because it's. 
so preoccupied. Um, and yeah. like, again, like you could write that essay that's like, yes, the experience of reading bad poems makes us extra aware in some way of what those poems are lacking, what would make them a positive experience. And by virtue of that, we ultimately do get some positive thing out of it. I think you could write that essay and it would be fine. But yeah, I, it, it was tough to follow in places. It felt very sensational as I was reading it or for somebody who is interested in poetry and has been for some time. I, it felt like, Oh, this feels sensational. This feels like right. a very buzzy, you know, I mean, it was, it is. Um, essay. So, yeah. Uh, it gets back to that question. Yeah. So who are these things for? Who are these defenses for? Yeah. I mean, and what are they for kind of thing? Like is poetry hurting right now? Like is poetry any, I think they're. I'm going to say that they're for exactly who ultimately reads them, right. <laughs> which is again, poets mostly. Um, I don't know many people who read poetry but don't write it. I don't know many people who read about poetry that don't write it. And, like, I would be so happy to hear (laughs) that, you know, we're... I I don't know. Maybe I'd be indifferent. I don't know if I care about how wide the poetry audience actually is but i do think ultimately that is who it's for i don't think you can like write the words virtual poem capital p poem and not be writing for you know an audience that already has some familiarity this feels very much like it's speaking to poets and to you know um people already in that world and I think that's probably true of most defenses and most denunciations. What are you going to do? Tell the general public that poetry <laughs> is dead? They don't care. It's already been dead to them. But, like, I mean, in terms of defenses, I think it's sort of twofold. I think that some probably hope to reach a broader audience. Right? Yeah. Um, I think it's, it depends on what the actual purpose of the defense is. Like, I think if it's saying that poetry has purpose, like some kind of social or socio-political purpose, um, it, like, it, it really depends. I think ultimately you're going to end up with a readership that is mostly poets, but possibly more than that, I think a wider audience is more likely to read a defense than a denunciation um, depending on like the language that it uses and who it sort of postures itself for, but it's always going to be mostly people who already exist within that field. I would say that the audience for this is just the people that asked him to write this for a book deal, dude. I mean, I don't know who these defenses are for. I think recent, more recently, like whenever you see this stuff, it's based on internet comments. So strangers online, 
that's who people or, are you know like, it just it, it's yeah. for us to make ourselves feel better about yeah. the shitty poems that we're not writing because we just have these beautiful perfect virtual poems existing in this otherworldly yeah. abstract that's what space I mean. he's basically arguing that you shouldn't bother to write it because your brain's better than whatever's i mean I think maybe that's, that's just where he's at in his career man yeah, but I, I just, <laughs> he's I, just not writing I, I just can't believe and that that's just, a serious thing being argued by somebody at his level. I just can't believe that that's a serious, legitimate thing. Not just that he did it, but that people are actually praising it for it. Like this, this honestly makes your art look worse. <laughs> like this makes people like poetry less. Like, <laughs> like, uh, I don't get it. Yeah, I'm not sure how much praise this got. But um, that and like you always talk about this too, like the audience. Like what what are we talking about? This kind of it's, it's again it's this abstract audience. It's this oh, why do people people be in this big abstract term hate poetry? Why do they love poetry? And again, it's this like uh, Yeah, I don't think they feel either of those things right. toward poetry. When in reality most, most people don't them. care. Yeah, most people are so indifferent, like it's Except not Except like... for like the stray, you know, high school sophomore who was forced to be introduced to it and decided in that moment that they hated it and stuck to it, but I don't think most people have like an active hatred that takes up so quite so much energy as hatred tends to. Yeah, well, when I think that's the thing, too. When people say hatred now, that they're talking about something that isn't actually... Again, like, hatred takes so much energy. Oh, I hate this. It's just, like, it's not actually what they mean, right? Like, it's not, like... I think that, too. I think people just don't like things that require stuff of them, right? Like, it's a selfish reason. Like, it's, why do people hate poetry? Well, because it requires something of them, and they don't want to do that. Like and people so... don't... Yeah, I also it's more, think people it requires don't work. love to read as much because well, it requires work. Well, the same reason and people I say don't want to read. Someone who has like fallen into the trap of fucking loving audiobooks, which I always have. Really? I, like always, like I was a shitty reader as a kid, and audiobooks really fucking helped me be able to like you know ultimately read without audio behind it. <laughs> uh, but like, yeah, it's fucking convenient because it doesn't absorb all work. of your fucking attention right. well, that's what i mean people just um, don't like work that's just part <laughs> but that's but that's yeah. also just part of where we are at like as a culture and like okay right. you know like we have all these technologies now we have the means to do this audiobooks are far more common and so like people who were largely not readers up until now probably are like at least you know dipping a toe in which is I doubt probably it, mostly good i doubt it i mean all statistically all the sales of books everything's down nobody's reading shit uh again i maybe that's where these defenses stem reading from versus listening we can get into that later but yeah. it's mean, a talk for another time yeah i've soured on audiobooks i hate audiobooks now the hatred of audiobooks, I love audiobooks. the hatred I of audiobooks. Love audiobooks so much the hatred of audiobooks. I love uh, only half committing. No, but you see, so you only what? hate it. You, you, I see. I only hate audiobooks because it's not as good as what I pictured in my head before I went there. Like that's the only reason. Wow. You like the virtual audiobook? Yeah, according to Learner. Yeah, that's. Um, again, that's a good application yeah, of I've, his nonsense logic in this book, right there. Yeah. Yeah, I fucking love audiobooks. Yeah. They're great. 
Well, for me, it's the same thing you said. It's, I don't like them because I, it, I tend to drift in and out. Like, I miss things because yeah. of audiobooks. It allows Which me to... Which is the same reason why a lot of people fucking love them. Right, exactly. You know? It takes the work out of it. Because you can drift in and out. Right. You don't have to be staring at it. Again, you can passively right. consume. This is the whole thing. Like he, he doesn't mention this at all. He talks about it being specifically poetry that people passively consume. No, it's all art. There's a small section of people that care about this deeply, and then everybody else is just a passive consumer. They buy this album by Ariana Grande because that's what they hear on the radio. They don't actually like, oh, I love music. Yeah, I love music. You become familiar with it. Yeah, they buy it because it's like, oh, yeah, yeah passively consume this while i'm in the background doing something you know like yeah that's also like you know which isn't to say that people who are like in love with music don't also like what's popular but also a different a different story for a different day yeah so final thoughts for me i hated this book offered me nothing i was pretty frustrated but what else is new, dude? Um, I I I liked the virtual book, but the actual one failed a little bit. For me. <laughs> um, but it's not its fault. It fails by virtue of existing in this world. Um, yeah, dude. I mean, it's absurd. It's an absurd fucking argument. Like it doesn't make sense. <laughs> like again, like when you put it again, in that way. Again, I would love to see. Listen, I would love to see a collection of essays from Ben Lerner, The Hatred of the Hatred of Poetry, right? where he does a breakdown of this argument oh, into several shorter essays. Listen, I'll buy the book, okay? <laughs> I'll, I'll do the Amazon review of it. I'll do all this shit. Listen, I, you know, I think it's annoying. I think he's... I said this of his novel. Uh, it's entertaining. It's smart. It's annoying as shit. Um, again, that's how I feel about autofiction generally. It's almost always annoying as shit to me. <laughs> but Does he write autofiction? Uh, I mean, you look at 1004 and <laughs> pretty sure the central character's name is Ben Lerner and is a poet and you know goes to marfa texas and is living in new york city and you know all of the things that ben lerner also does and has done and is <laughs> named but i i mean i i it wasn't like bad it uh it had an, an air of and maybe it's just like the self-reflexivity of it all or just there's something in it that's just annoying and I could never quite put my finger on it. And I was like, you know what? I do both hate and kind of enjoy this and I can't. And maybe my annoyance slightly outweighed my liking. Right. So it became that much more confusing. You know, usually you can largely like something and be like a little annoyed by it. But I felt like an even like I both hate and kind of enjoyed this. And I'm not sure what to do with that. And I spent a semester just not really being able to figure it out. So I assume it's just that it's autofiction and that it's so clearly, you know, Ben Lerner, the novel. 
Well, so, I mean, I think autofiction is just, I mean, if I was going into my elaborate theories, autofiction, the popularity of autofiction is just showing that like how devoid of imagination our culture is. We're just so obsessed with ourselves that we can't think of any actual ideas of well, our that's own. What it so feels we just, like. I think that's you know. what feels annoying. It feels a little bit self-absorbed. Well, which, it is, you know, I mean, and which fucking writers are and like whatever, but don't maybe don't show me through the character who is you. <laughs> Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, anyway, you know, 1004, it's a, it's a pretty good book. You should read it. Yeah, I guess you should I'll buy read it. it. Um, and, you know, to all of you out there, I hope you'll also read The Hatred of Poetry and, you know, tell us what you think. No, we don't care what you think. Don't tell us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, put it Defer in the comments. Andy. Put it in the comments. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, is that it? Yeah. Go and look up some really good pictures of Ben Lerner so you can put uh, the face to the to the words if that, you know. I mean, not that that really matters. If you care more about the virtual Ben Lerner than the actual Ben Lerner, <laughs> do not look it up. Yeah, dude. You can also, if you just type in Midwestern, like Midwesterner into Google, I think a picture of him just shows up. Like, Do we count Kansas as the Midwest? I would. I am not uh, very intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> not good at maps. Right. Uh, but it's okay. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you're probably right. It's one of those states that I can't tell if it's like the South or the Midwest or both. And I lived in Kentucky for a while. And I was always pretty confused by it there, too. It's like, see, you're Southern. Okay. <laughs> this is the... <laughs> okay. But that's Ohio right there. But this is the South. All right. Yeah, <laughs> we get snow here. <laughs> but yeah. Ohio's right across this bridge. Yeah, and so is Indiana. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is that it? Nothing else on this crap. I mean, like, how much more time are we gonna spend on this? Yeah, I you can't. Know? I can't. I can't spend any more time on it, dude. Gas it. I just Gassing asked that. Out. Yeah, I just asked that I think to make I sure. out like an hour ago. <coughs> I just asked that to, yeah. I just asked it to make sure that we're like, all right, nothing. We didn't gloss over anything you wanted to hit before we officially stop. You know. There's nothing else. Right, We've gone yeah. so far. It's been three and a half hours. Good. It's been three and a half hours of Ben Lerner, dude. Yeah. It's too much for the ben second Lerner, shortest but... book we've ever read. The short, second shortest prose we've ever read. <sighs> All right, yeah. So, uh, if you want to contact us to tell us about how wrong we are about Ben Lerner, you can contact us at our actual email address, heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to our Patreon. Uh, patreon.com slash heavyboard receive full uncensored episodes for subscribers only that includes bonus content and everything else we do with this uh, check out and subscribe to our YouTube channels for more links to all the books and everything we covered in the description as well as the holidays essay 
And next episode, we're doing... Um, what are we doing next episode, Sif? Some shit. Uh, no, we have it on my list here. All right, shit. Okay. We're doing yeah. Pimp by Iceberg Slim. Oh, man. Fucking are we? Yeah, dude. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for that, dude. Oh, dude. I'm, I can't... I like the... I like that we, every time we do something that's like fucking poetic theory, we just go into something that's just like referring to cocaine and fucking within the first two sentences, like... I like that idea. I have my dad's copy of that book. Yeah, dude. Classic. Throwback. It's an important book. All right, yeah. So next week we're doing Pimp Iceberg Slim. Uh, this has been Heavy Board. My name's Andrew Wittstadt. I'm Sophie Wiener. I guess we'll see you next time. Fuck out. Don't come back. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Run away. Heavy. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy. Bored. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.